Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Things are really heating up around the world, so I hope that you're all staying safe. Hopefully these scary stories will give you the chills and help you cool down a little bit. Without further ado, let's get into it. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I led a research team into the Amazon basin and found life forms I hope never make it into our cities. Written by 10 Minute Horror. I had always wanted to go on a discovery expedition, something exploratory, uncover a new breed of animal or species of plant, or maybe an evolutionary offshoot, something that had been hidden away like a secret by Mother Nature, to be discovered or not. I'd been shortlisted to lead the Amazonia expedition, which had gone into the Amazon basin and Vale du Javari near the Peru border. They had been given a route directly from Funai, which is Brazil's indigenous affairs department, created to protect the native populations in the interior of the basin. The route that we were given led around the 14 known native tribes that had lived, untouched for their entire existence in the rainforest, and they had lived among the dangerous animals, insects, and weather developing their own forms of neuropathic medicines, from the roots of the wasai tree being ground up to aid in kidney health, to the tuari tree bark used in anti-cancer treatments, to the cordoncilla with its anesthetic properties. The many tribes had discovered these secrets of the Amazon. In fact, the Matsis tribe who inhabit the border region between Peru and Brazil had created a thousand-page encyclopedia of their traditional medicines, with the assistance of five shamans in a conservation group. The Matsis were doing this because they feared they as a tribe were falling into extinction. They may not have thrived, but they did survive. They had been given help from the government, making them and their portions of the rainforest into protected classes and regions. Heavy fines and even jail time were imposed on outsiders if anyone approached the tiny villages. We could harbor diseases that we've already overcome with our immune systems and medicine, which would decimate the tribes. This was particularly ironic, as we were going and looking to find treatments amongst them for our ailments, which they had already overcome with their immune systems and medicine. The mission was privately funded, which just meant one of the big pharma giants wanted to keep it low-key. This also meant there would likely be line-crossing in different ways. Typically, I didn't like engaging with the possibility of an expedition outside of universities, as the funding would be pulling all the strings and the research would be highly classified. This one was no different, but I applied anyway. It came down to me and Philip Dwyer, Dr. Dwyer was a professor of archaeology, but held doctorates in biology, focusing on mycology and phycology, which is why he was chosen. Not that I wasn't well-versed in the topics, but he was a giant in that world, and everyone else was just reflecting in the gleam of his armor. I had more or less forgotten about the expedition after I had received the thanks but unfortunately letter but checked back periodically to see if there was any news of discoveries, which there weren't. In fact, it had been incredibly tight-lipped. 
That is, until I had seen Dr. Dwyer's obituary. The cause of death wasn't listed, and I couldn't find anything online. Then I received a phone call, and the answers slowly started presenting themselves. The man on the other end was named Rayburn. He was involved in the preparation and funding of the Amazonia expedition. They were sending another team in and wanted to offer me the position of lead researcher. I said yes before I had a chance to think about it, and plans were made to get me to South America. I was flown to a private airstrip near the Peru-Brazilian border, where we drove as far as the roads would take us into the rainforest. A camp was set up there for us where the team had been prepping before descending into the interior. I finally met Rayburn and was able to ask all the questions that had been building up since the phone call. Rayburn explained that a private land mapping organization had been using a series of drones with highly advanced sensor technology to chart the floor of the Amazon and the animals and life that filled it. Certain animals fed on certain insects which fed on certain plants which it carried certain properties which were highly beneficial and profitable to Western medicinal companies. The company had discovered how to chart and make highly accurate predictions on where certain plant species would be found, based off this reverse-engineered food chain algorithm. What they had discovered was the Terranatal Valley and the remnants of a lost civilization rivaling the Mayans. There had been structures detected in the deep gorge, several of which had been carved into the mountain and appeared to continue under the rocky elevation. The last known coordinates of the previous expedition was at the bottom of the valley, in what was being referred to as the Morto Interior. That was where we were headed. Finally, I got to ask about Dwyer. Rayburn appeared to have been trying to avoid it. He explained the doctor had been the only one of the previous expedition to make it out of the jungle alive, which was how we had all the information that we did, and the information was incredibly promising. And Dwyer had made extensive notes in his work journal, but half of them had been burned beyond recognition. When I asked how that had happened, Rayburn admitted it was a part of Dwyer's death. The doctor was the only member to make it to the city, but within minutes he had set himself on fire and everything that he had with him. The spine of the notebook and the left half of each page had survived. I was allowed to comb through it on the last leg of the drive before we had abandoned roads and trails. Dwyer had discovered a new species in the family of Aposinaceae. It was almost identical to the Catharanthus roseus, which is known as the Madagascar periwinkle bright eyes in the graveyard plant, among others. There were two main points to the discovery that Dwyer had highlighted. The first highlight was the obvious one, and the one he was most excited about. The plant was used to treat leukemia, Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, brain tumors, advanced stage breast and testicular cancer, as well as diabetes and malaria. It was a juggernaut, but this one species he claimed had a groundbreaking therapeutic properties, including an insulin-stimulating supercharged vinsulin alkaloid. That alone would revolutionize treatments for most, if not all, forms of diabetes, possibly even cure it. The second highlight, however, was the vexing one. This plant wasn't found in the Amazon or anywhere in Brazil, 
or South America. It's native exclusively to Madagascar, though it can be grown elsewhere ornamentally. A species this distance and its evolutionary track and this far removed from its origin point cannot possibly progress to how he was describing. And yet, that's what he had found. But not just that. Dozens and dozens of other species of plants, molds, and fungi. Microbial ecology was a serious interest of mine, and I had done research papers on how fungi played crucial roles in policing rainforest biodiversity. What I discovered was that fungi prevented the success of any dominant species of closely packed plants by infecting and quickly spreading between them. This would enable a wider range of differing species to flourish, acting as the main decomposers of ecological systems and growth is the fungi's mean of mobility. The more they eat, the more they expand and travel. They also don't require photosynthesis, which means they flourish in some of the most impossible conditions. He wrote about advanced forms of polyphilic slime molds, biotropic mycoparasites, advanced and aggressive flagellates with powerful spore delivery systems, pyranomocytes and frightening mutations of the Amanita veroso, the Podostroma cornudame, and giant strains of angel wings and deadly dapperlings. So many of those weren't native to that area or that hemisphere, and wouldn't survive in these conditions. Shouldn't. And yet Dwyer had documented them all. We arrived at the final base camp and met everyone that was going in. There was a small team of mercenaries who had been hired on to make the trip as safe as possible this time. It was led by a man named Miller with a jawline like a refrigerator. I hoped that I wouldn't have to deal with him often. Rayburn had also brought in twice as many local guides, paying triple what he did the previous group. This was a results-based mission, and he had to yield them. We left at dawn on foot, two of the guides leading and the rest carrying large canoes overhead for us. We'd be portaging, though, through several swamps between the lengthy hikes that brought us further into the uncharted land, places feet hadn't walked before deeper than any tribes had gone. Well, not any tribes. Not the one they had supposedly found. I heard bird calls, wings fluttering, animal movements, twigs snapping, growls and grunts, a slithering, buzzing, hissing, running water somewhere nearby. That night, the howler monkeys screeched and the brightly colored tree frogs cackled like witches. And all the while, my own heartbeat was thumping through my ears and it was hot. So hot. I sweat through everything that I brought on the first hour. There was also the pungent smell of damp, decomposing trees and decaying vegetation, plants and shrubbery. The difficulty of walking became evident quickly. The rainforest floor was covered in rocks, fallen trees, brambles and dead leaves covering the ground under it, or what might be creeping and crawling just below our feet. The first day, we made it eight miles into the depths of the rainforest, which was almost half as far as we had planned. This was all of particular concern because there had been a storm front detected brewing just off the coast of Lima, and was looking to be headed inland. Before we left, there had been a conversation of whether or not to wait it out, but in this case, money spoke and everyone agreed. The sounds shifted from morning to day to night with a rotating chorus of taunting chaos piercing through the jungle. 
The morning of the third day, we moved to canoes. Miller was told to keep his men on high alert as the waters were filled with black caimans. They were the largest of the crocodilian family and could grow up to six meters in length, and they were violently carnivorous. When we took to the shore for the night to sleep and the mercenaries traded ships on watch overnight, it was incredibly dangerous, but we were behind in time and needed to make up for it. The heat and the mosquitoes upped their assault on my sanity. You couldn't escape either. That night, a roar of gunfire woke me up. One of the mercenaries, Stevens, was dead. He had an arrow through his throat and it choked on his own blood. And then I saw the four other bodies. They were natives, a part of the Satir Mal tribe. They appeared to be a twilight hunting party, and they had stumbled upon our campsite. Stevens must have spooked them, and they put an arrow through his Adam's apple. We didn't know how many more were nearby, but the Merc stayed on high alert for the rest of the night. In the morning, we buried Stevens and left the bodies of the tribe to be claimed either by them or by the jungle. I felt horrible about it, but also frightened. These Satir were an intense tribe and now had a reason to come after us. I had heard stories about them, some firsthand, others passed on from so-and-sos. They had a painful rite of passage for the boys to endure to be accepted into manhood. It involved experiencing the worst pain the jungle has to offer, and this came in form of the bullet ant. It is said to have the most painful sting of any insect, true to its name. The sting is allegedly comparable to being shot with a bullet, and it can last up to 24 hours. For their manhood ritual, the Mao boy would have two gloves filled with bullet ants placed on his hands for no less than five minutes. When it was removed, the boy would shake uncontrollably for hours and experience hallucinations, disorientation, and muscle paralysis. To complete the ritual and be accepted as a man by the tribe, the boy would need to endure this practice a total of 20 times over the course of months, sometimes years. And those boys, now grown up into strong, resilient, and deadly shadows in the forest, might be hunting us. Not only that, but we discovered two of the guides were gone. Their extra clothes and supplies were still in their sleeping bags, but it looked like they had been taken in the night. We never found out what happened to them. Back in the canoes, these sounds continued to follow us, like a warning was being sent out to whatever lay ahead. We couldn't tell if the sounds were actual bird calls or from native vocal cords. And then, I saw movement under the boat. In the water below us, something large, tube-like, scaled. It was a green anaconda, a giant one too. Our guides motioned for everyone to raise their paddles out of the water and hold our movements. I watched as the massive snake zigzagged under our canoe, its lengthy body seemingly never-ending. It must be over 40 feet long. Somewhere nearby there was a splash, and then another one and another. The mercenaries lifted their guns, pointing to the water and tree line, waiting for a target to present itself. Movement caught my peripherals. On the back of the guide in front of me, little feelers poking up. An Amazonian giant centipede. It was crawling up his back towards his long hair, where it would vanish in it. I looked over the edge and saw the anaconda's tail disappear ahead of the canoe, and the water below us settled. 
I quickly flicked the giant centipede off the guide's back and into the water. It must have been over a foot long and two inches thick. We finally made it to shore and were back on foot for what would be another full day of cutting our way through dense forest. One of the mercenaries went down after being bitten by a musarana. Thankfully, we carried a full pharmacy of anecdotes for the vast categories of venoms from snakes, spiders, and insects that we would come across. The fourth day, the jungle sound stopped. It was like somebody had pressed the mute button. Animals and insects alike had been prevalent throughout the journey, but at one point, it seemed like they came no further. And shortly after the introduction of silence, we arrived at the Terranatal Valley. We couldn't see it, of course, as the canopies below blocked it out. An old pathway was discovered carved into the flat, rock face of the gorge. It led down the otherwise sheer side of the mountain. We left the canoes above and descended with only the equipment that we could carry. It was frightening staring down, following the age-worn stairs as they disappeared into the canopies of dense trees. As we got closer to the canopies, the temperature had dropped noticeably. We dropped below the tree line and all the terror that I had felt disappeared, and it was replaced by absolute wonder. I stared down at dozens of small, one to two story structures carved into the side of the rocky decline. Other small homes were built out of what appeared to be huge cyclopean blocks of limestone, clay and mud and lined the floor of the valley. So there was a city here. That much from Dr. Dwyer was true. I tried to keep my eyes in the narrowing path ahead of me, but it was impossible not to drift back to the monumental discovery below. The town had a large, straight line across its center, with markings throughout the structures which were built around it. The sunlight was beaming down on one of the markings. I looked up and saw that there was a wide opening among the various canopies above. The sunlight found the hole and streaked across the town, following the line from one end to the other. It suddenly occurred to me that the tribe had built the structures in that way, creating that line with markings to use the shifting light from above as a sundial to tell time. Fascinating. At the far end of the markings where the sun disappeared and it signaled dusk had arrived was what appeared to be the main mountain entrance to whatever was inside, presumably more structures. A half hour into climbing down the mountain path, Miller, who was leading us, stopped and a discussion was had with Rayburn. After a few minutes, we continued forward and I got to see what the issue was. There is a man on the path, clearly a member of the previous expedition. He was laying on his back, dead. A large, frightening protuberance had erupted out of his chest. It looked like a sharp, petrified tree branch with thorns spiking out of the sides. We took turns stepping over him, and it became more unsettling when I noticed the man hadn't been picked apart by animals insects maggots or anything. He was just slowly decomposing, his skin going as white as the growth spewing from his chest. The rest of the walk down, the man was all that I could think about. There was another half hour of careful foot placement to go. How had he made it this far? And we finally reached the bottom of the path and walked out amongst the structures. They were incredible to witness. They weren't just your common mud huts. 
They were built with monolithic blocks of solid limestone layered on top of one another. There were colossal rock shapes balancing on others, making Stonehenge look like child's play. I was immediately reminded of the story of a Latvian immigrant who had built the Coral Castle in Homestead, Florida. He's the only man to claim to know the secret of how the Egyptian pyramids were built and supported the claim by single-handedly constructing an entire complex of blocks of coral, weighing up to 30 tons each in his backyard. Inside, the castle walls were numerous puzzles, yet to be solved. Though the man had been contacted by universities, engineers, technologists, and even the government, he kept the secrets with him and brought them to his grave. The tribe, whoever they were, had discovered the same principles, methods and techniques of building these structures. Miller and the mercenaries led us through the town, guns pointed up and into the dark and empty openings of the complexes. It was eerie with the only sounds in this massive valley coming from us. We made our way down the gorge into the large crevice with the grand carved entrance. The sunlight was at a point in the sky where it angled into the canopy opening above and through the rocky threshold lighting far into what appeared to be a massive cavern. We climbed a lengthy staircase with carvings on the kicker plates up to the entryway. We entered through the large, beautifully structured archways into a small hallway. The walls were covered in carvings in multiple languages. Then there were the hieroglyphs. Clearly Egyptian, but that was as far as any of us could tell. There were images carved into the ceiling portraying battles between kings and foreign rulers, gods and men, men and creatures. The walls were also lined with holders for torches and every four feet, a fire pit. As I admired the artwork and presumed documented history of the tribe, the light reflecting into the hallway began to dim. Leaves blew in, scuttling across the ground, passing us and into the large cavern ahead. Thunder erupted in the distance. The light vanished from the tiny opening in the canopies above as clouds overtook the skies. We were thrown into twilight. The air whipped past us in a chilled breeze and whistled through the massive chamber. The storm was here, and we were about to be pushed into the large caverns for the night. No one liked the idea, but the reality was we were now going to be stuck here for several days, a week maybe and these storms could last even longer. The rain hit and we knew that we were bunking in the main cavern for the night. We just had to explore it and find the safest place. The cavern itself was a magnificent sight. Though it was dark, we did have powered lights into small generators, as well as flares to take in our surroundings. There were dozens of entryways and stairways that led to walking tunnels and small rooms. The further in that we got, the more appeared to be a mass housing complex carved into the rock that extended far into the mountain. The center of the large cavern appeared to act as some kind of courtyard, and in the middle was a 30-foot wide hole. It was surrounded by large fire pits. The hole dropped 40 feet down into the earth. At the bottom, there were massive limestone formations. A labyrinth of jagged, needle-shaped rocks had been formed by erosion and pointed up like a naturally arranged bear trap. A horrible stench emanated from it. As our lights moved further down, we saw skeletons. Some were impaled and still, 
somehow stuck on the spears. Others were on the floor of the hole. I could only assume it was a sacrificial pit. Most tribes across the planet had some version of the same practice, an offering or a ritual slaughter to appease the gods. At the bottom, there were strange holes formed into the side of the pit. They were varying sizes and shapes, but they circled the walls, leading in every direction. There was a strange fungus mushrooming out of some of the holes and cracks, and slimes creeping out from others. I couldn't identify the gross from where I was, and I had a sneaking suspicion I wouldn't be able to even if I was standing right next to them. One of the flashlights hit the torso and left arm of what looked like one of the previous team members, impaled on a limestone spike. It had been a month and a half since they had disappeared, and the body was still juicy. The guides were growing more fearful. Even the mercenaries were giving each other nervous looks. My foot tapped against something and I looked down to see what resembled a scarab shell or exoskeleton. But the closer I looked, it appeared more organic and plant-based, or fungi, or a mix of the two. What many don't know about mushrooms is they're a perfect blend of animal and plant, and this looked like its evolutionary track had grown faster, far expanding its reach down here. I inspected it further. It was a little thing with tiny sharp bristles and hooks sticking out in all directions. It must use them to latch onto prey. The storm began to rage outside and swept into the large cavern and guys. We set up a campsite inside and a perimeter around it. Not that I thought anyone would sleep. As tired as we all were, the rotten stench from the death pit was unshakable. I stayed up, going back over Dwyer's damaged workbook, but my mind kept floating back to the hole, the storm, us being stuck here. Though we were safe from the storm in here, we would have to have a real conversation about what we were going to do in the morning. If the storm was as bad or worse than expected, we could expect a flood. And the last place that we would want to be is the bottom of a valley in the jungle. What many don't know is that this region is home to over 2.5 million insect species, tens of thousands of plants and fungi, and several thousand different bird and mammal genus and they would all be coming over that edge from above and slamming down on top of us with hundreds of tons of rainwater. I put the book away, but I couldn't sleep. My anxiety was riding high about the storm, so I decided to go out of the entrance and see for myself. I told the mercenaries and they told me to keep close and not stumble off. They didn't want to come find me. Outside of the entrance was complete and utter darkness. The canopy above acted like a blackout blinds, shuttering any illumination caused by the lightning. Though, I would get brief millisecond snapshots of the town as some light snuck through. The windows and doorways of these structures were empty still. I don't know why I thought that I would catch the eyes of the previous inhabitants staring back up at me, wondering who the trespassers were and what they were doing in their town. A chill settled into my bones and all I wanted was to be back in my sleeping bag. I stayed up for another hour in my tent before finally falling asleep. I'm not sure how long I was out, but it was still night when I woke up. A scream echoed through the cavern and shook us all. 
I could see the spotlights shooting on from around the perimeter, and the massive shadow was something on the outside of my tent, pressing in towards me. It was long with multiple legs scratching and grabbing at the nylon fabric separating us. I tore my way out of the opposite, zippered side and saw what looked like a giant centipede, over 20 feet at least, mashing into my tent and sleeping bag. Gunfire roared out, with the centipede taking heavy fire on its armored siding. The bullets eventually pierced through, and the creature shrieked out and it was blown apart. My ears rang as more gunfire and explosions from hand grenades had erupted. I turned to run but nearly tripped over a grotesque sight. There was a guide on the ground, an even larger centipede than the first one had eaten the man's entire left leg, and it was working its way into the man's hip and waist. The creature must have used some neurotoxin when it first bit down into him to paralyze the man, and then it started feasting, the man feeling all of it. I heard a metal connect the ground and roll underneath the centipede and the guide, and then my ears popped and I felt heavy pressure jettison me back and I landed on another guide, who had already been chewed in half. The mercenaries were unloading every bullet and grenade that they had. I found Rayburn and we rushed over to Miller, who was barking orders. They appeared to have it mostly under control now. There had only been four of the giant centipedes, all of which were blown to pieces now. A scream shrieked from the edge of the hole. One of the guides, the last one, was being pulled over the edge of the hole and disappeared. I yelled that we needed him. He was the one keeping track of our location by clocking our course on the map. The map that he carried with him everywhere in his backpack. We at least needed that. Miller quickly gathered who was left. There was Rayburn and two other mercs named Dawkins and Wyatt. Only five of us now. We had started out with 23 men. Miller wanted to drop explosive charges into the hole, but we reminded him that would destroy the map. If it hadn't been already, we needed it. The team quickly pulled together a grappling system to lower us down to the bottom of the hole, avoiding the limestone spikes. I was given one of the dead mercenary setups, with some kind of long-barreled rifle with a magazine attached to it, a handgun and a half-dozen grenades. All I knew about either of the guns was where the safety was, where the trigger was, and where the dangerous end was. We lowered down to the bottom of the pit. I told everyone to avoid touching any of the slimes or molds along the walls of the hole. In fact, avoid touching literally everything except for the map, when and if we found it. At the bottom, we found ourselves staring at several varying-sized tunnels, ranging from us and not being able to fit to us being able to easily walk into upright. It was an easy decision which tunnel to enter, as the blood smears from the guide led into one roughly shorter than me. We could see movement down the tunnel, and Miller led the way in. We got 20 feet in before we arrived in a large chamber. In the center were three smaller centipedes, 12 to 15 feet in length, feasting on the guide's lower half. His upper half, including his backpack with the map, was only a few feet away from them. Miller got Dawkins and Wyatt to flank his sides and they entered the chamber. Rayburn and I followed slowly, staying just outside of the chamber. I could hear a frightening scuttling sound from all over the walls. 
like the wings of bats mixed with the clicking of beetles. Another quietly pulled the backpack off the dead guide's destroyed torso and started to back up. But as he did, his heel clicked down on an old bone and the crack echoed through the chamber. The centipedes turned and saw fresh food had entered their home. Dawkins and Wyatt started spraying bullets at the creatures, but this was a mistake. The walls began to move, and all those scuttling sounds took to flight. The air became filled with those little scarab-like creatures from the exoskeleton that I found. They were moth-like but fungi-based, and with these sharp, pronounced flagellates that characterized them microbially, the ground swirled. Rattling joined into the cacophony. So much rattling. Rayburn and I sprinted back through the tunnel, Miller on our heels to keep up. I only looked back briefly, but saw Darkins and Wyatt swarmed by the tiny creatures, clawing and biting into the exposed flesh, and small puffs of dark smoke spraying out of them like cephalopodding. Only this wasn't to distract, it was to kill. Rayburn, Miller, and I made it out of the tunnel, but heard more and more sounds of varying magnitudes erupting from the different entrances. A massive, frightening black blob of an organism had spelled out of one opening, and it was creeping its way through the spikes towards us. Looking at it, all I could think was how it resembled a magnified version of an aggressive cancer cell, only slime and fungi-based, eating and expanding and moving and eating, always hungry and never content. A grenade landed right in its center and another two grenades were tossed into the hole that we had just come from. Miller yelled for us to hit the deck. All three explosions went off in a row, but when the first one did, it sprayed the gelatinous fungi creature all over the tunnel and a massive screw-up on Miller's part. Globs of it hit Miller's back and began to eat through his gear. The second double explosion sent me flying into the entrance of a new tunnel. I landed just a few feet away from one of the guides. The tunnel was coated in a foul oozing fungus with large mushrooms in the shapes of fingers reaching out. The guide was being absorbed into the side of the wall, half his face now the same color and texture of the gross, and he was still alive. His skin was sliding off his body and joining a horrific quilt-like patchwork of other skins, all looking like they belonged to our team or the previous one. I saw at least five other faces on it, rippling like a cancerous waterbed. The guide's arms ripped and pulled away from his body. It started to crawl towards me. Rayburn pulled me up and led me back to the ropes. Smoke was now coming out of the tunnel, but I could hear these scuttling starting up again. We attached to the ropes and quickly pulled ourselves up, climbing around the expanding fungi, spreading out and reaching to touch us. Rayburn tried to climb past one, but it sprayed out a dark gas at him. The vapor looked corrosive and quickly burned into his clothes and skin. Miller kept firing down, reloading, firing, reloading, firing. He was the lone reason that we made it out of the pit. I only turned back once and saw shadows coming up from behind us, occasionally lit by the muzzle flashes of Miller's machine gun, and in those short blinks of light, I saw nightmarish creations of nature that nearly drove me into a state of fear-induced paralysis. 
but Rayburn was there and kept yelling at me to climb. I crawled over the edge and back into the large main cavern, pulling Rayburn up. His skin was going black in large blotches like he had been afflicted by a rapid form of frostbite, but he kept moving and fired back down into the pit, giving cover. I turned and saw the bodies of the mercenaries and remaining guides were all gone now from the former campsite, and large, snail-like creatures appeared to be absorbing or drinking the remaining on the ground. There was fluttering above, and I caught glimpses of bats with multiple sets of wings dipping down and nipping at us. The jungle storm was raging outside, and all I could think of, plan-wise, was to hide in one of the exterior structures in the town, and try to get up the pathway when and if the storm eases at dawn. I hoped the way up wasn't washed out yet. Miller climbed out of the pit, open wounds in the form of sharp slashes lined his body. He tried to run forward with us, but something from the pit had stopped him. Two giant pedipalps, one over each shoulder, slammed down, and a spray of red erupted from Miller's mouth. The guide's backpack had dropped from his hands. A series of long, furry legs spread out behind Miller and pulled him back down into the depths to feast. I believe that I had just seen a branch of the genus Phanatria, or the Brazilian wandering spider, and it was the size of an SUV. And there were more. Rayburn sparked a flare and screeches erupted from the hole, like the mere touch of illumination on their skin had been caustic. I grabbed Rayburn by the shoulder who was now wincing from pain with every step, and we rushed for the hallway that led out. Rayburn was fumbling with his bag, and he pulled out a rectangular-shaped explosive. I recognized it as a C4 charge. He clicked the timer and dropped it as we ran. A disturbing symphony of ghastly sounds erupted from the depths of the pit, chasing us out onto the rain-slicked and crumbled stairway down. The C4 exploded, sending us flying over the staircase and landing hard on the ground. I was dizzy and a dust had settled over the town, hanging in the air like frozen rain. We might as well have been at the bottom of the ocean, or the deepest realms of space. Movement zoned me right back in. In front of me, a yellow eye appeared through the fog. As it got closer, I saw that it was a giant anaconda, its face the size of a dinner table, but half of it blown away from the C4 explosion. It was alive though and it was locked onto me. It came at me fast but a spatter of gunfire roared up from beside me. Rayburn was on his back struggling to get up but he had his machine gun out firing it off at the massive snake. The anaconda was hit hard and quickly slithered off into the fog. I picked up Rayburn who could barely jog now. I led him straight down the town's thoroughway and then off to the right. I saw the rocky pathway up. It was still far enough away, but it looked beautiful, like a literal stairway to heaven etched into the side of the mountain. Rayburn dropped, screaming out. His knees were bleeding, and the blackened parts of his body had solidified and it felt like hardwood. I tried to help him along, but he couldn't move forward, and he certainly couldn't make it up the rainy and broken track up and out of this place. The rain was pouring down on us and leaves and branches were battering the town. I looked back, but I couldn't see the opening to the cavern. 
I led Rayburn into one of the tall structures, and I brought him up to a room on the second floor. He lay down, becoming very still. I watched him die over the course of a few minutes, his entire body blackened and solidified, and then cracked open like burnt wood. The effects of these slime molds in the pit were rapid and devastating. I was terrified to move. I just sat there and thought to myself, trying to break down as much of the events as I could. The different insects and fungi, highly advanced and very susceptible to light, that much was clearer. The pit had been lined with large fire pits surrounding it. The halls had torch holders and smaller fire pits. I imagined the entire cavern had been filled with them, though we hadn't really gotten to explore. Just as that research paper I had read had proposed, the fungi kept the ecosystem down there in check. Though it was a continuously hungry and feeding organism, it had a built-in evolutionary directive dating back to its first ancestors of single-celled life forms and needing more life to survive. I thought through all the papers that I had peer-reviewed, and I remembered one about a sinkhole-prone region in coastal Romania called the Moville Cave. Geologists had breached a cavern that was filled with blind creatures that hadn't seen the sun in five million years. The life forms had adapted naturally to the extreme cold and darkness and they had thrived. The cave had developed in the only fully subterranean ecosystem known to science. We appeared to have found something somewhat similar. Rayburn's body spasmed, his head tilted to the side and his forehead began to expand, pushing outward. I realized that it was going to explode, likely to spread some kind of spores into its immediate environment. I clutched the gun that I didn't know how to use in the guide's bag and I rushed out in the hallway and towards the room at the back of the structure. I got into the room and heard a small, meaty explosion from Rayburn's head, and then tiny flutterings, screeches, cries, silence. I looked out through the windows and could see the trail up from here. I turned back and saw something in the corner. No, someone. A man. He appeared to be a member of the previous team. He was long since dead, similar to the first member that we saw in the middle of the path. This man had horrific growths exploding out of him, but this time, the petrified wood-looking mold had come out of his throat, dislodging his jaw which hung down near his chest now. A machine gun rested in his lap. The man had written on the wall in his own blood. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollon. I wasn't up to date on my Bible verses, but I assumed the R stood for Revelations. The rest didn't fill me with hope. I stared at the man, who had very clearly thought he could wait out whatever was coming after him. I wondered how many more previous team members were skittered throughout the structures, having hoped for the same thing. I checked out the window opening in the wall and saw with a brief flash of lightning, the tail end of a giant centipede entering the first floor doorway to the structure that I was in. They had found us, of course they had. Our smells probably hung in the air like some delicious path of breadcrumbs. I had to get out. 
I grabbed my supply vest, gun, and backpack, along with the guide's bag. I climbed out the window and lowered myself to the roof on the next level. The wooden panels below me supported me for one step, before collapsing in and dropping me on top of the centipede on the first floor. The creature shrieked, twisting and snapping and trying to get at me. I squeezed my fist holding the machine gun, and it exploded round into the ground and up the upper side of the creature. The centipede panicked and slithered its long body out the window. I climbed out of a window opening on the opposite side and found myself back onto the main walkway, getting pummeled by the rain. To the right, I saw the pathway that would lead me up. It was only about 40 feet away. I didn't look left. I just ran. I could hear horrible screeches shaking the town under the roar of the constant thunder and only caught glimpses of my surroundings as the sporadic lightning that snuck through the canopy opening. But I heard and saw enough to know something was right behind me. I turned, gripping the trigger again and showering whatever was behind me with bullets. The muzzle flash lit what I believe was a bullet ant the size of a grizzly bear. My shots had covered its face and it frantically pulled back, darting down a side alley. I couldn't imagine what one of these creatures' bites would feel like. I turned back and kept sprinting, pulling the one flare that I knew I had out. I was going to need it on the climb up. It would last only about the first five minutes, so if I moved quickly, I could be just out of the creature's reach. I hoped. I got to the pathway up and found that it hadn't been affected by the storm. I climbed the first few steps and sparked the flare, using it to find my footing until I was high enough away. I looked back, but the town was swallowed up in the darkness of the storm. The lightning had stopped, but thunder had multiplied, popping my ears. I kept climbing. I was 30 feet up, 40 feet, 50 feet. The flare burned out. All I had were two flashlights now. I turned back and saw movement on the path below me, rushing upwards quickly. It was low to the ground, a centipede. I fired several rounds down but wasn't hitting it. I reached into the supply bag and found a half dozen set of grenades. I took one and threw it down the path. It bounced off and went over the edge, exploding midair. It lit up the side of the wall and I saw the massive Brazilian wandering spider again. It was coming straight up for me. I took out another grenade and held it for a moment longer and then threw it down at the encroaching centipede. This time it landed perfectly. It blew up in the creature's face and took off a huge chunk of the pathway, making it now inaccessible without special climbing gear. That took care of the centipede. I looked back down and saw the spider was getting closer. He was right behind me, so I took out another grenade and I dropped it. The spider pivoted on the wall, narrowly avoiding the explosion and continuing up. I sprayed the last of the bullets from the magazine down on it, and just as it had clicked empty, two of the arachnids' legs were blown off by the ammo, and it fell back to the town. As it did, it passed the globular organism, which was slinking its way up the side of the mountain now as well, and it was advancing faster than me. It was going to cut me off up ahead on the path. I had to quicken my pace. I knew that I had four grenades left, which I would likely need all of them for this thing. I was ten feet from it as it was getting closer to the path ahead. 
I decided now was the time. I pulled out the grenade rack and snapped the pins out of all four. I leaned over the edge of the path and underhand threw the package at the slithering blob. It was a perfect throw, and the timing couldn't have been better. The creature blew apart, sending small large bits of it falling back down to the town. But the pathway couldn't sustain the explosion either, and it started to crumble, chunks falling down below. I rushed up the path, trying to get past the collapsing section. I felt my legs go out as the entire rock slab shook. Every move was critical as I scrambled, the fingernails breaking off and fingertips shredding. I managed to just barely get a hand grip ahead, and I pulled myself up just as the path below me crumbled away. The rocky debris was landing on the creatures below. There were so many more species of everything than I had previously seen. The things of nightmares, the things you wish were made up. The long moment that I saw them with the spark of a lightning bolt, I knew that I would never be the same man that I was. Knowing these things were possible made me fear for humanity's future. But the storm hadn't slowed down, and it was still a long way to the top. I pushed through the canopy, taking a moment for one final look at these small structures, the town, the movement of things that would hopefully never leave this place. And then I continued on and up finally getting to the top of the path. I made my way to the site that we had stashed the canoes in, and found two extra supply bags in a tent, but I couldn't sleep here. I grabbed the smallest of the canoes and two paddles, just in case and began dragging them through the jungle. I knew a good chunk of the way for the next several hours and could follow our previous path from the markings that we had left. Even though I was beyond exhausted, I didn't want to stop moving. When I was far enough away, I could pull out the guide's backpack, look over the map, and figure out the rest of the way back. I walked until dawn peeked through the storm clouds, and I found myself in a small clearing. It felt like a divine moment. Somehow I had survived and found this perfect instance where the storm opened up. The sun had found this break in the canopies and it was shining down on me. It gave me warmth and courage to tackle the trip back to civilization. I ate the food that I had left over and I rested. After a brief nap, I decided to keep moving and I opened up the guide's bag. The map wasn't in it. The bag had some clothes, a flask, rolling tobacco, and some dried meats, but no map. I knew that I could find my way to the next river launch, but from there, this place was a maze. A swampland leading to lakes, leading to waterfalls, leading to caves, leading to more swampland. I wanted to throw my hands in the air and give up. But the sun from above kept shining down on me, and I kept moving. I found my way back to the river and remembered that we had came at it from the right, so I would go left and follow it until I hopefully recognized another marker. The water was calm, but who really knows what goes on a foot under the surface. I had visions of running into a giant anaconda, the black caimans, the sadder Maui tribe. I imagined they'd found the bodies of their dead at our old campsite by now, and they were looking for us. Up ahead, I saw a small peninsula that I recognized as one we had launched off from to get into this stretch of water. I could see one of our old campsites, and 
I decided to stop there for the night. The jungle was loud and I had nightmares about all kinds of creeping and crawling things, nesting under my skin and poking out from open wounds. I felt a sharp pain shoot through my leg and woke up. I scrambled out of my sleeping bag and found a large spider bite on my calf. I couldn't find the spider though, so I don't know how bad it was or how much time I had. I quickly heated up a knife and using a lighter and pressed the heated blade into the bite. Hopefully that would kill some of the venom, but the toxin was likely already flowing through my veins. I got up and started moving, hoping that I would be able to keep going. Quickly, I felt like I was in a treadmill that was getting shorter with every step. I dragged the canoe an hour before I gave up and collapsed. My vision was getting blurry. All my senses felt like they were shorting out. The edges of my sight were vibrating with red spots. I started blacking out and then coming back too. I remember seeing flashes of faces, dark-skinned, aboriginal, native. But the fever dream that had taken over was incomprehensible. I knew what the toxin was doing in my blood. But why was it showing me these people? Was it guilt for the men that we had killed and left? Maybe this was the jungle's way of settling its due. My vision went black for good and I felt my body being moved and then nothing. I woke up a week later in the hospital. The faces I had seen had been at the Sadr Maui tribe. They had found me taking care of me and giving me their own medicine and then brought me to the nearest village. From there, I was driven to a hospital and flown to a larger one in Lima where I was stabilized. I'll likely never be able to thank them. I was going to have to give a debriefing of what happened. Rayburn had investors who wanted to know where their exotic plants were to make overpriced drugs with. All I could think about sitting in the hospital bed was how much I hoped none of those things would ever make it into the city. And whether or not that small but growing black mark on my forearm was an infected cut, or what Rayburn had. Somewhere outside of Dublin, there's a retirement home with scratch marks on the walls, written by Lighting Nations. Here at Redburn Village, we work hard to ensure all residents enjoy their retirement in a relaxed, peaceful environment. Our assisted living facilities enable you to enjoy maximum independence, but with a safety net of highly skilled nurses available 24 hours a day, offering you and your loved ones complete peace of mind. It's a glorious place to wake up each morning, cozy, friendly, warm. So why not come see what we have to offer? At Redburn, you won't just live, you'll live to the fullest. The one-eyed cat skulked around my new garden, no doubt gearing up to fertilize the rose bushes, or so it seemed. In retrospect, I may have rushed to judgment, but to be fair, the big move had me all stressed out, and cleaning up some strays of water crap every morning wasn't quite how I had pictured my retirement. By my feet, there were two cardboard boxes. I grabbed a fuzzy slipper from the closest one and shouted, Go on, get out of here. The slipper flew in a smooth arc but missed by a solid three meters. 
My wife Mary would have hit the roof if she had caught me using animals for target practice, even ugly ones. The little vagrant glanced at the slipper, yawned, and then strode along the side of the house and disappeared. A flea bag, I grumbled. Honestly, Dad, Angela said, as she carried another box out of the van. We've been here for five minutes and you're already all worked up. Remember what the doctors told you? Yeah, yeah, nice and easy. But you've got to show these vermin who's boss. Otherwise, they'll walk all over you. Angela's nose wrinkled. She had a medium build, a short auburn hair, and like her dear mother, a soft spot for animals. Especially the useless ones. That's probably why she had fallen for Patrick, who I had clocked for an oxygen thief ever since he asked for help changing a tire on a Ford Escort. We took a moment to survey the peaceful street. The Redburn Village consisted of a huge Georgian mansion surrounded by a semicircle of identical red brick houses. I still don't get why you insisted on being so far out the way, Angela said. I had rented a place at the outermost point, a real sore spot for my daughter. She wanted me in the main facility so the staff could spoon feed me mushy carrots and wipe my butt twice a day. But I quickly poured cold water on that idea. Will you quit worrying? Didn't you see the brochure? If I so much as stub my toe, they'll airdrop in a troop of nurses. After a patented Donnelly eye roll, Angelie carried a footstool off into the house. Sometimes I couldn't help but see the funny side of our predicament. It still feels like only yesterday she needed me to shine a flashlight in her closet to chase away the monsters. In the front lounge, she said, I just don't want you to feel like you had to come here. You could always live with me and the kids. Like me, Angela acted a tad hard-headed at times. Sweetie, this was my idea, remember? This place will do grand. Actually, retirement homes sickened me. Nearly last stop before checkout, everybody knows that. But Angela had two moody teenagers and an overactive nine-year-old to raise. By herself. Already that house was a circus and I refused to be a burden. After dropping off those first boxes, I went outside to fetch more only to discover a gray-haired man with narrow cheeks, trimming the hedges along the edge of my garden. Behind him stood a gangly orderly, cursed by the worst case of neck acne you had ever seen. What do you think you're doing? I shouted, rushing over to snatch his shears away. Stringy drool leaped from the corner of the man's mouth, as he mimed to clipping the air several times. Well? I asked impatiently. I'm Noel. I'm the gardener here. His voice sounded as slow and sluggish, drunk almost. Well, Noel, I don't need any landscaping done. I'll take care of that myself, thank you very much. I offered him the shears, which he accepted after a few seconds. Neck acne looked like you wanted to punch me, a feeling that was very much reciprocated. My daughter wandered out of the house and joined us at the edge of the garden. And then Noel said, I'm Noel. I'm the gardener here. Again. Slightly confused, I cleared my throat. Um, I'm Thomas, and this is my daughter, Angela. Pleased to meet you, she said, offering him her hand and then when he didn't respond. 
She reeled it away and quickly cleared her throat. Uh, so, Noel, how do you like it here at Redburn? The muscles in his mouth spasmed involuntarily as his blue eyes glazed over. The assisted living facilities enable us to enjoy independence with a safety net of highly trained nurses available 24 hours a day. The staff ensure even the smallest details receive their full attention, offering me and my loved ones complete peace of mind. It's a glorious place to wake up each morning. Cozy, friendly, warm. Okay, I replied after a short pause. Here, we don't just live. We don't just live, we don't. Noah's eyelids fluttered as if he had gotten laid out by a straight right cross. I, I... He looked from Angela to me and then back and forth. I, I don't want this anymore. He gasped, his whole body trembling. Neck acne quickly clamped a firm hand around Noel's shoulder, leaning in close. Let's go, Mr. McCann. The Avi on the west side of the main building's gone crap again. Ivy? That's right. You're Noel, the gardener here. Remember? Yes. Yes, I I'm Noel. I'm the gardener here. His voice sounded brisk and relaxed once again. We watched the two men totter off along the curved road, the orderly's hand flat against Noel's back, and then I turned to Angela and said, What's his problem? Honestly, Dad, don't be so insensitive. The poor guy's obviously got something wrong with his head. Her tone reminded me of the one my wife took any time I pointed out how ugly kids had gotten these days. Looks like he's not the only one, I said, gesturing broadly over the street had a dozen of the residents dragging themselves up and down the path on metal walkers, past others who stood on their front walkways like mannequins. Angela grabbed a hefty box from the back of the van. Oh, what is this even? Your mother's antique cutlery. Give it here. It switched from her hands to mine. At 68 years of age, I was no spring chicken. Before decades of work in construction had left me reasonably well-muscled. What's it made of? Gold? Uh, silver, actually. Rummaging through a smaller, more manageable box, she said. Do you really need all this crap? What are you planning to do with it? That's not crap. That's my backup torch into Decker Power Drill. Do you know how much that beauty cost? I know what it is. I'm asking what you need it for. We'll say there's a power outage and I have to put up a poster board. Angela threw up her hands. Get the staff to help. The doctor specifically told you. Ah, uh, don't get me started with that quack. See, that's the problem with your generation. You listen to all these fancy buzzwords and think you've got a million imaginary diseases. Honestly, Dad, sometimes it's like you're obliged to have an opinion on everything under the sun. And with that, she stormed off into the house. The two of us decorated each room with quaint, sentimental objects that reminded me of Mary. At one point, Angela happened across a picture of me and her mother on our wedding day and went all quiet, her bottom lip quivering. Paternal instinct told me that she needed a hug. I threw my arms around her, kissed the top of her head, and then gently cradled her like a baby. No matter how old kids get, they never stop needing their dad. 
Mary often joked about our daughter being my Achilles heel, about how she had a direct line through my stubborn nature. You've got a prickly outer shell, Thomas Donnelly, but that's all just a front. She would say with a cheeky grin, secretly you're a big teddy bear. And we stood there in silence, my arms wrapped around Angela, until at long last she said, I miss her so much. I know, sweetheart, I know. Before we had finished unpacking, another member of the Redburn staff knocked on the front door. Unlike the previous fellow who had a skinny neck ravaged by acne, this one had no neck at all. He looked like a potato with a face carved into the front. Past him above the rooftops, the sun had almost set. Had the whole day already blitzed past. When I pulled open the door, the potato-faced man said, Excuse me, but Miss Flanagan has requested your daughter stop by the main office to discuss emergency contact information. The frequent pauses he took to draw breath made his speech pattern weirdly stilted. But there's still so much to do, Angela protested. I'll go, I said. I'll handle the rest. After unloading those final boxes, I sized up every room, and then like an expert surgeon, I laid out an assortment of tools all real men should have. Screwdrivers, tape measures, hammers. The idea of lounging about all day made my stomach churn. That's why I had protested when Mary initially suggested that we retire. Of course, once she got the diagnosis, I started hating myself for not listening. My work sabbatical was meant to be temporary, but after the funeral, the boss called me into his office and said, Wouldn't it be nice if you had more time to yourself, Tom? My younger me would have raised a fit at some guy pushing him out the door like that, but after losing Mary, it hardly seemed worth the fight. I became numb to the world, stuck in run out of the clock, made with nothing to do besides home DIY, and there'd be no shortage of that now since I had taken up residence in an absolute bombsite of shoddy worksmanship. The glass door opening to the rear garden jammed at the midpoint. Half the cabinet hinges were losing their baby's teeth, and the floorboards squealed louder than my grandson any time you told him that he couldn't play his Nintendo. But first, that front lounge demanded a shelf on the sidewall, a place to display Mary's favorite necklace, along with some select photographs. After mounting the mini shrine, I gently ran my fingers across a shot of her taken down by the beach. What do you think, sweetheart? I said. Would you still love me now that I'm a useless old fogey? Her picture didn't answer. It never answered. From the corner of my eye, I spotted a strip of wallpaper peeling away from the uh, skirting board, directly beneath the window. Grunting heavily, I got down onto my knees for a closer inspection, my spine feeling like it had gotten hammered by hot iron. Alongside my head, that scraggly feline from earlier jumped up onto the outside ledge. Half of the cat's left ear was missing, and judging by the missing clumps of fur, it had gotten into a brawl with an electric razor. You could barely tell that it was a tabby. Go on, get. While I furiously wrapped the glass, the cat lifted a hind leg and casually licked its own crotch. Murmuring my disdain, I rolled up my sleeves and peeled away the wallpaper, only to discover the beginnings of deep marks etched into the wall, some so deep that my thumb fit right inside them.
I let out a low whistle. To me, it looked like somebody had gone back and forth with an axe and then done a third-rate job at papering over the damage. No two ways about it. The entire lounge needed to be replastered. As I mused over the best-sized trowel for the job, practically giddy with excitement, the doorbell rang. A nurse with long dark hair stood on the front porch. Mr. Connolly, I presume. Uh, call me Thomas. Pleasure to meet you, Thomas. I'm Prisha, one of these staff nurses here. I've come to give you a checkup. Ah, uh, checkups. Otherwise known as the perfect opportunity for smart Alex to point out the things you already knew didn't work right. Still, always better to get things over and done with. Fine. In the lounge, she fitted a tube around my arm and inflated the cup before listening to my heartbeat through a stethoscope. Already bored of the dreary silence, I asked. Well, how long have you worked here? Just started two days ago, she answered. Her attention focused on my wrist as she tracked the balls. You're in pretty good shape, Thomas. You'll have to tell me your secret. Well, you know the usual. Drink plenty of water and get as much fresh air as you can. And I was a builder for 40 years. And that'll keep you fit all right. She grabbed a notebook from her pack and flicked through my case notes. Now, what's this about a metal plate? I drummed my forehead. No work mishap, not my fault. Some idiot who had no business being on the construction site. He got the sack and I got a plate on my skull. Oh, sounds nasty. She handed over a clear plastic tray with a little compartment on it for the red and yellow pills. Okay, so we're going to keep you on a basic course of meds. Nothing serious, just some essential vitamins. But generally, you're in tip-top shape. I wish the rest of our residents were as healthy as you. <laughs> Reckon you could put that in a letter and post it to my daughter. She smirked. With that, the nurse gathered up her things and said her goodbyes and then left. In the kitchen, I heated a tuna casserole and ate it standing next to the counter. The cat followed me around the back of the house, watching my plate fixedly from the window beyond the sink, its single eye glowing against the dusk. I suppose you're looking to get fed, huh? I said. The cat licked the roof of its mouth as though agreeing with the statement. Well, forget it. A spontaneous staring contest broke out. I will blast you with the hose. My agitation gradually boiled over into anger as the four-legged menace refused to budge. That's it. Don't say I didn't warn you. A framed photo of Mary stood on top of the microwave, a sentinel on guard duty. Her picture almost seemed to frown at me. Oh, come on. I wasn't serious. Throughout the years that we had spent together, my wife almost drove me to the loony bin by constantly bringing home injured critters. Back then, it nearly drove me up the wall, but now, I'd give anything, literally anything, to have her barge through the door carrying a baby bird with a busted wing, just one last time. All right, I muttered to her picture. I scrapped leftovers onto a plate and set them on the outside step. The sentient ball of fuzz wasted no time getting stuck right in. Narrowing my eyes, I said, This is a one-time deal. Don't get any funny ideas. After washing up, I wasn't yet ready for bed and honestly, felt rather lonely sitting there, mindlessly flicking through photo albums. 
When you lose your soulmate, leaving behind this unplugable gap, one no amount of petroleum-based putty could ever fill. Although Mary never strayed too far from my thoughts, a late night stroll would at least help clear my mind. Outside, warm light spilled from the lampposts, contrasted by the darkness of the road. A high iron fence surrounded the entire estate, the only way in or out through an automatic gate, because the last thing that people my age want is break-ins or drug addicts lounging around. A curved pavement carried me past handsome homes. Each time the wind gusted, leaves scattered across gardens and back doors banked lightly. Another sure sign these people didn't understand the meaning of home repairs. The main building dozed, despite it not being all that late. Most likely the feebler residents had already turned in for the night. I continued along that asphalt road until up ahead. A distorted shape blitzed across my path, quickly disappearing between two houses. It only stayed visible for a fraction of a second. Probably my imagination. At my age, my eyes play tricks. Further along, I got a glimpse of a silhouette peeking over a slanted roof. A sudden gust of wind made me squint, and by the time my eyes adjusted, the thing had vanished. The dang optician had warned me about not wearing my reading glasses more often. Just then, something swooped above my head, momentarily blotting out stars. A moment later, there was this brief, far-off growl. An odd mixture of a lion's roar and a jackal's bark. I couldn't dismiss that as blurred vision. My creaky knees rattled as I broke into a spontaneous jog, eager to get home. The growl, if you could even call it a growl, came again and closer this time. I pinched my keys between my first and second fingers and I held up a closed fist. Thoughts of Mary got swallowed by fear, mindful of the cramping muscles in my legs. I bolted from one circle of light to the next until, midway between two points, my left foot clonked against a solid object and it sent me tumbling forward. On instinct, my hand shot out. In your late sixties, a fall like that usually meant a one-way ticket to the ER, but Lady Luckett smiled down on me that night. My palms burned from where they had scraped against the asphalt, but I had survived. In a heartbeat, I scrambled back to my feet and spun toward whatever had tripped me, and as I did, my stomach clenched, because now I could see what it was. A pale figure flat on their back, completely motionless. A nasty jolt of terror stabbed me as I leaned close to the body and realized I would actually recognize the person lying there. It was Noel. His face looked pure white. The thin lips had gone bluish at the corners, and the entire right half of his neck almost appeared black from an ugly purple bruise. After failing to locate a pulse, I rushed home and called the Redburn reception, and then watched through the lounge window as two orderlies loaded Noel onto a stretcher and wheeled it away. My hands refused to stop shaking. What sort of asylum had I checked into? A few minutes later, Potato Face stopped by, spouting off some stuff about Noel's heart giving out. What about the bruise? I demanded, shocked that he actually expected me to believe everything was hunky-dory. There was no bruise. No bruise? The poor guy had one the size of my fist. Mr. Donnelly, you're mistaken. It's late and you're tired. 
The two of us argued back and forth, me growing steadily more agitated, him sticking with his BS story until finally he signed off with. Miss Flanagan will explain everything tomorrow night at the weekly meeting. Okay, fantastic, explain away. Whatever she said made no difference to me because I didn't plan to stick around. Before, I had dismissed the lounge marks as the result of hiring a cheap laborer. But after hearing that growl and stumbling over Noel's body, suddenly they seemed more sinister. All night, I lay awake staring at the ceiling. I couldn't have slept a wink even with Mary beside me. First thing in the morning, I called Angela. Dad, what's going on? There is no need to worry about her plunging into the grisly details. Well, everything's grand. I've just been thinking. This whole move might not be such a great idea. Why, what happened? Nothing, it's just I've had some time to think and you're right. Living with you might be the best option for everyone. Redburn's not really a great fit. Immediately, her voice lost any sense of empathy, of warmth. But Dad... The staff there work hard to ensure all residents enjoy their retirement in a relaxed, peaceful environment. Their assisted living facilities mean you'll enjoy maximum independence, but with a safety net of highly trained nurses, available 24 hours a day. She rattled off the spiel like a recording machine. Angela, why the heck are you talking like that? They'll ensure even the smallest details receive their full attention. Offering you and your loved ones complete peace of mind. It's a glorious place to wake up each morning. Cozy, friendly, warm. At Redburn, you won't just live. You'll live to the fullest. She took a deep, shuddering breath. Yeah, I completely agree. You should stay put. Before I could get another word in, she signed off with. Hey, glad you're enjoying yourself. Gotta go. Love you. As I slumped back into an armchair, completely dumbfounded, the cat jumped up onto the window ledge and licked its front paw pad. Things were getting seriously weird. So, on my first night in Redburn Village, I had been stalked by a strange, shadowy figure who discovered my neighbors act all like absent-minded like a pack of zombies and stumbled across the corpse of a fellow resident. For my own safety, I needed to get out fast. Angela still had the moving van, but speaking with her over the phone, you would have thought they hired her to run their summer marketing campaign. Again and again, she regurgitated the brochure's spiel about highly skilled nurses and complete peace of mind. While their meltdown could wait, I planned to catch a bus into Dublin book myself an overnight stay at one of these cities and many overpriced hotels and send for my wife's things later. I loaded some spare clothes and an emergency toolkit into a suitcase and rolled it over to the front gate, where a bulky orderly came out of the hut and said, Where do you think you're going? None of your business. Open the gate. Well, seeing you're a resident here, I would say it is my business. Already seeing red, I clenched my jaw. I'm gonna come backwards from five. If that gate's not open by the time I reach one, we're gonna have a serious problem. Ah, get out of here. I don't want to see you here again. Got it. His giant arms folded across a barely chest. Although still fairly hefty from all those decades in construction, 
My fighting days were long gone. I would have loved to wipe the smug grin off that guy's face, but just marching across the village really got me feeling the age in my joints. The guard would have had me seeing stars in no time. What's the big deal? I asked now furious. Residents aren't allowed to leave without permission. Whose permission? Miss Flanagan's. Ah, Miss Flanagan. The Redburn head honcho. Well, they get on your walkie-talkie and tell her to get out here, chop-chop. He smirked, refusing to say another word or budge a single inch, even as we squared off with one another. A showdown. I stormed into the main facility where thick black grime engulfed the point where two walls met the ceiling. How could they have let such a nice building fall into such poor condition? A short-haired receptionist behind the counter told me the same thing as the guard. Residents can't leave without permission. Well then go fetch Miss Flanagan now, I said. I can't. Why not? Well because she's not here. If you need to speak with her, you can do that so at the weekly meeting this evening. It's in the rec room at dusk. Hang about for a whole day after what happened. Was she joking? I already fed up with this nonsense. I grabbed my phone and dialed a 999. 20 minutes later, a squad car pulled up outside the front gate. And then two officers, a male and a female, climbed out. Yeah, I'm the one who called. I sat through the bars. I want to leave, but these people are holding me hostage. Behind me, the orderly muttered something into his radio before addressing the officers. This is Mr. Donnelly, one of our residents. Getting really close to the gate, he whispered. He's got dementia. You lying son of a... I snapped. Gently, he touched my arm. Mr. Donnelly, you live here, remember? House 17. Do you need help finding your way back? The officers exchanged a look as I swiped his hand away. I don't have dementia. My name is Thomas Donnelly. I'm a 68-year-old. I'm perfectly capable of looking after myself. And I want to leave. Mr. Donnelly, think carefully now. The orderly spoke in the same soft tones I used whenever my daughter got scared by thunder back in the day. You live here now. It's 2022, you remember? I know what year it is. I pushed my chest right up against the gate and grabbed the male officer's collar through the bars. These people are all crazy. There are claw marks in my lounge and last night I found a body. Over my shoulder, the orderly said. One of our beloved residents passed away last night. Mr. Donnelly's taken it pretty hard. Now, matching the guards a condescending tone, the male officer said, Don't worry, we'll get things straightened out. That didn't exactly inspire me with confidence. All four of us went back and forth, me growing steadily more agitated, until Precia, the nurse from before, wandered over, accompanied by two orderlies, neck acne and potato face. So far, she was the only person at Redburn who acted like a regular human being. I said, Precia, tell these people that I'm not senile. She gave a vacant stare. And then with zero compassion in her voice, she said, Come on, Mr. Donnelly, let's get you home. All this agitation won't be good for your heart. My stomach churned. Why had she called me Mr. Donnelly rather than Thomas? Her accomplices stepped forward, arms raised. I faced the officers again and said, 
and they've got to her as well. Four hands seized me from behind, hooking into my armpits and around my waist. Don't let these lunatics take me, I screamed, my anger giving way to panic. As the orderlies hauled me away, the female officer calmly called after us. Mr. Donnelly, why don't you have a rest and see if you're feeling better tomorrow? If you're still upset, give us another call and we'll check everything's okay. My previous dismissal of Noel as a basket case echoed bitterly in my mind. As the guards frog-marched me down the street, past other Redburn residents standing idle in their gardens, or wandering aimlessly up and down the road, Neck Acme said, You're quite the troublemaker, Mr. Donnelly. When Miss Flanagan hears about the fuss you've caused, she's not going to be happy. He snatched the mobile phone from my fanny pack before I could react. Unable to wrestle free, I said, Who the heck are you people? We're the staff, answered the fat one. And we're here to help. Back at my house, the guards dragged me through the hall and into the lounge, where they forced me onto the chair. Prisha offered me some pills from her nurse's case, which I knocked out of her hand and onto the floor. Those guys weren't pumping me with any drugs. Neck acne dismissed her and potato face before turning toward the exit. Why are you doing this? I asked. This is elder abuse. Grinning slyly, he peeked back over his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, take it up with Miss Flanagan. On his way toward the door, his eye happened across a picture of Mary. The shelf, was it here before? No, I put it up. I know the idea of home maintenance is a frightening concept to your generation, but in my day, men knew how to fix things, and they respected their elders too. He studied the shelf for a moment. His bottom lip pushed out as if mildly impressed. Don't cause any more trouble, he said and then slammed the door. Supported by the armchair, I stood with a heavy grunt and went over to the bookcase in the corner. On the third shelf, the box containing my wife's antique cutlery sat open. For decades, that collection seemed so silly and pointless to me. But since the funeral, all the Mary's personal belongings, no matter how mundane, kept her fresh in my memory. I picked up a photo of us down by the beach. Letting my fingertips brush across her smiling face, I said, How about all this, huh? Letting Laurel and frickin' Hardy push me around. My thoughts drifted back to the day that photo got taken. Mary's 23rd birthday, one year before Angela came along. On the way back from buying a couple of ice creams, I saw some weirdo smack my wife's backside. Within seconds, I had that guy flat on his back. His jaw permanently realigned six inches to the left. What the heck happened to me? My younger self would have scoffed at those two muppets. It was long past time somebody set these guys straight. At dusk, I pulled on a jacket and stormed over to the main building. Being outdoors so close to dark made me feel exposed and vulnerable. But I couldn't exactly barricade myself indoors. No way to reach the outside world. Who knew what those evil guys might have done? Halfway toward the main facility, that mangy cat blitzed across my path. I lifted one foot and then the other in a waltz, awkwardly trying not to crush the little furball. The feline stopped long enough to hiss at me. Uh, don't tell me you're going to start acting up as well, I said. It hissed again before disappearing beneath a nearby rosebush. 
Inside the main building, I trooped up to the front desk and slammed both fists against the counter. Where is Miss Flanagan? Follow me, said a voice from behind. It belonged to Potato Face. He led me through a series of hallways, all large and luxurious, decorated in pastel shades of pleasant green. With every turn, I saw plaster flaking off the walls, or mold creeping up above skirting boards. There was a horrible stink of damp and mildew everywhere. Potato Face led me into a high ceiling room filled with several rows of foldable chairs split by a wide central aisle. A sea of old people had already gathered together. Orderlies and nurses stood in single file behind a podium, on the far side of the gloomy crowd. Well, I said to my chubby guide, where is she? She'll be along any minute. Have a seat. I shuffled across the very back row past frail figures stooped over in their chairs. I sat between a lady with bloodshot eyes redder than a Massey Ferguson and a curly-haired fellow who had an oxygen tank plugged into his nostrils. None of the residents responded to any of my questions. They just sat idle like mindless zombies. After a few minutes of uncomfortable silence, the fluorescent lights above our heads dimmed as the far-swung door opened, and then Miss Flanagan finally emerged. She had long, dark hair with a white streak through the middle, pulled into a bun so tight that it stretched the skin along her forehead taut. She stood at roughly my height, or thereabouts, and her sharp features reminded me of Angela's old porcelain dolls. Neck acne trailed behind her, eyes fixed on me, Taking her place behind the podium, Miss Flanagan said, Good evening, everyone. A voice, as soft and soothing as a pillow, came out that hard, narrow mouth. The mob responded in perfect unison. Good evening, Miss Flanagan. As she took a moment to adjust her notes, I pushed myself up, ready to demand answers. But then the lights went all the way out. Now I could see where Miss Flanagan's eyes, her shiny silver eyes, from beyond the veil of blackness, she said. Repeat after me. The Redburn Retirement Village offers residents a wonderfully elegant and relaxed lifestyle in a beautiful environment. Those words hit like a thunderbolt. They seemed to bounce off the walls, echoing all around, rattling my bones. Retirement Village offers residents a wonderfully elegant and relaxed lifestyle in, the crowd repeated. Once they finished, she had said, The assisted living facility allows you to enjoy maximum independence but with a safety net of highly skilled nurses for emergencies like cleaning, meals, and activities. Assisted living allows us to enjoy, they continued. Had I joined a freaking cult? Is that why they wouldn't let me leave? Were they gearing up for some Heaven's Gate crap? When she had rattled off the spiel, her lanky crony came down the aisle, barely visible in the gloom. Every time that Miss Flanagan spoke, her words seemed to creep along my throat. Here, the staff ensures that even the smallest details receive our full attention. This made no sense. What made me want to copy her? Had these nutters slipped some kind of mind-suppressant into my meds? Now desperate, I shoved past our other residents, 
rolling wheelchairs aside and knocking over metal walkers. At Redburn, you won't just live. We won't just live. If anybody asks how you're doing, you'll tell them that you're as happy as can be. We're as happy as. You will act in service of Redburn. In service of Redburn. By the time that I got to the center aisle, Neck Acne was already there and waiting. He grabbed a hold of my shoulder. Going somewhere, Mr. Donnelly. Although I sorely wanted to deck the guy, my aged body couldn't take slugging it out with a younger man. Better to swallow my pride and live to fight another day. I just nip into the bathroom, old bladder. I forced a friendly chuckle. I really think you should listen to the presentation. Quickly, he grabbed my other shoulder, so I spun toward the podium. My spine cracked from the pressure of him twisting my arms behind my back, forcing me in the direction of those dazzling eyes. My limbs got pressed, almost to the point of dislocating. With every step forward, Miss Flanagan's words became fiercer, more intense. You are here to serve. We are here to serve, chanted the living dead. It took all of my self-control not to join them. Pushing his lips right up against my ear, the orderly said, Look into her eyes. You will obey the staff here at Redburn. My head whipped wildly from one side to the other. No, screw off. You're bent on causing trouble, aren't you? He said, frustrated. With that, he forced me past the podium, through the door that Miss Flanagan had arrived by. In a room with a filing cabinet, a wooden table with green chairs on either side, and another door on the far wall, Neck Agni stood guard, refusing to answer any of my questions and ignoring my empty threats. From through the closed door, I heard the residents mindlessly chant along for several minutes, before slowly shuffling back into the hallway. The instant Miss Flanagan stepped into the room, I said, Okay, what the heck's going on? Quiet she said. There was a sudden traffic jam in my throat. Calmly taking a seat behind the table, Miss Flanagan said to her enforcer, Well? He fetched a case file from the cabinet and handed it to her. This is Mr. Donnelly, the troublemaker that I warned you about. I think that he's immune. The way that her lips pursed as she studied the notes set my skin shivering. Locking her eyes on mine, she sharply said, Sit. Obeying the order, my legs marched around the chair where they gave way. I couldn't climb back to my feet. I had become super glued to the cushion. Well, not completely immune, she said. After glancing through the notes, she said to her assistant, It must be the metal plate in his skull. If he's going to put up this much resistance, there's no sense keeping him around. If he calls the police again... With considerable effort, I pushed myself up off the chair and forced my lips apart. No, hang on a sec. Sit back down. Immediately, my legs turned to slop, soft and mushy, she said. Well, tell his family that he had a heart attack. He's fresh out of the hospital from a virus. When are you going to do it? He asked. Miss Flanagan's stomach grumbled. Tonight. It took all my willpower to say, What are you two clowns talking about? Heart attack. I'm healthier than an ox. Look, I, I don't know. Mr. Donnelly, you're burning up. 
she said, her voice dripping with impatience. The room immediately became a furnace. Look, you're turning green. The pit of my stomach churned and twisted, and your pulse won't stop climbing. My heart thudded painfully in my chest. As she leaned forward across the table, those bright eyes locked onto mine. I can't remember the last time I saw a man look so sick. The word sick bounced around inside my skull. Darkness pressed tight against me. However, despite the haze, I continued protesting. Grasping the air like a drowning man, I rocked from side to side. No, no. She conversed with neck acne for a little while, her words too garbled for me to understand. Until, out of nowhere, that thick haze began to lift. Little by little, my strength returned. I could think clearly again. Had whatever drugs they had pumped me worn off. It didn't matter, because it seemed like they had planned on killing me before I could shine a spotlight on whatever insanity they had planned. Miss Flanagan leaned even further forward. Her yellow carrion breath tasted of expired meat, thick and pungent. Stuck in the chair, my final thoughts were of Mary, of her laying in a hospital bed, sickly pale, while the doctors explained all they could do now was make her comfortable. Goodbye, Angela. I love you. Don't cry. I'm off to join your mother. As Miss Flanagan put her hand on the very edge of the table, it jerked awkwardly, momentarily throwing her off balance. After quickly recomposing herself, she pursed her lips, shot neck acne a sharp look and said, I thought I told you to fix that dang wobble. Sorry, ma'am. The assistant stammered, scared to meet her gaze. We'll get somebody to look at it. She shot up and circled the desk, clearly agitated. Eyes fixed on the floor, neck acne said, What a shame Mr. Donnelly has to die. He's a bit of a handyman. Die. The word echoed in my mind. It felt weird to hear it said so casually. Miss Flanagan's forehead became one large, threatening wrinkle. What? Visibly flustered, he bent down and fumbled through the notes. Uh, yeah, it says here that he worked construction for 30 years. When I went over earlier, he'd already put up a new shelf. She pushed her tongue into her cheek, completing this information. Change of plans. She quickly reached forward and grabbed both sides of my skull. You love it here at Redburn, Mr. Donnelly. You want to help us, don't you? Those giant eyes pierced my soul. Her words still had that compelling quality, only this time. The rest of the world didn't melt away. I could have spit in her face if I wanted to, but the squeaky wheel gets the oil. I needed to think smart. Maybe if I played along, they would let me go. At least for now. Making my face completely neutral, I said, Yes, I want to help. Good. Then tomorrow, Bernard here will give you a list of jobs that need to be done. You will obey his instructions and fix everything that he tells you to. My arms hung loosely at my sides while I nodded along. If anybody comes to check on you, be it your family or the authorities, you'll tell them that you've been feeling run down. You'll explain that you've been under the weather, but the staff here are doing everything to make you feel comfortable. After completing your assigned duties... You'll report back here at sundown. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Miss Flanagan.
good. And with that, she released me and got up and exited the room through the side door. Sinking into the chair, I quickly snatched air into my lungs. Immediately, my thoughts steered back to Angela, to Potato Face asking her to see Miss Flanagan before. Had they pumped her full of drugs too? Maybe that's why she ignored my calls. Before I could get any of this straight in my mind, Neck Acne dragged me out of the room, through the main facility, all the way back home, where he stuffed me through the front door and said, I'll see you tomorrow, bright and early. Yes, sir, I answered obediently. In the lounge, I collapsed onto the armchair. Those giant claw marks were still there. Where had they come from? And why were Miss Flanagan's eyes so dazzling? What had Miss Flanagan planned to do before her assistant had spilled the beans about my DIY skills? Drill a hole in my frontal lobe, maybe? Or offer me up as some ritual sacrifice? Well, in any case, I needed to get the heck out of Redburn. But how? I had no communication to the outside world. All the staff seemed somehow involved with this madness, and the place was a regular Fort Knox. As I sat there contemplating my limited options, the one-eyed cat jumped up onto the outside windowsill and brushed back and forth against the glass, meowing loudly. I glanced at Mary's picture up on the shelf, back to the noisy critter, and then reluctantly slid open the window. The furball strolled in like he owned the dang place. I poured a saucer of milk for him, followed by a glass of whiskey for me. A sadness unlike anything that I had ever felt before crashed over me like a wave. Until now, the notion of my own death had seemed like an event that couldn't come fast enough. Always too far off. Years, possibly even decades away. But now the big day had almost arrived. The meter was running, and that terrified me. I looked at Mary's photo for advice, and like always, she only smiled back. After licking its face clean, the purring cat jumped up onto my lap, curled into a ball and closed its single eye. Scratching its soft, warm belly, I let out a deep sigh. Fella, we're in some serious trouble. All night, I sat in that armchair, the mangy cat curled up on my lap. Every time that I closed my eyes, Miss Flanagan's silver ones flashed through my mind. Well, come sundown, I'd be seeing those horrible eyes again. First thing in the morning, Neck Acne pummeled the front door and gave me a list of things to do. I strapped on my tool belt, filled a duffel bag with drills and screwdrivers, and went from house to house, crossing off items like leaky taps and squeaky hinges, really dragging out every job delaying my inevitable return to Miss Flanagan's house. The whole time, I acted like a stage hypnotist had placed me under a trance so that neck acne wouldn't get suspicious. In those marches between homes, the cat watched from across the streets or halfway up trees. Was it my imagination, or did the little critter actually look concerned? In one house, a short lady with bottleneck glasses sat quietly listening to a radio turned to a golden oldie station. And wouldn't you know it, Rocket Man by Elton John came on right as I finished, realigning her crooked picture frame. That song was playing the day that Mary and I first met. While taking a break from remodeling a kitchen, I had popped into a bakery for a quick scone. A lady behind the counter stood with her back to me. She reached over and turned up the volume on a nearby radio. 
Ah, don't you just love Elton? She asked as she turned around, really feeling the music. Even in a flimsy apron and cheap hairnet, she was the most gorgeous creature on planet Earth. Without the slightest idea who Elton was, I said, he's the best. After six weeks of visiting that bakery almost every day, long after I had finished the kitchen and stopping by for a quick scone and a 20 minute drive out of my way, I finally plucked up the courage to ask her for dinner. What took you so bloody long? was the response. By mid-afternoon, half the repairs were checked off. In a weird way, it felt nice to be useful again, despite the circumstances. In the main building, nurses spoon-fed residents cream pudding and mushy vegetables as I flitted between rooms, tightening sink pipes, replacing bulbs, and refastening a ceiling fan that had come away from the plaster. With only a half hour until sundown, there was only one task left on my list. Miss Flanagan's wonky table. I followed neck acne into the little office where, before I could unpack my tools, Prisha came to confer with him privately. He said to me, Fix that table and then stay put. I'll be back before dusk. Got it? Yes, sir. Finally, he had given me some breathing space. This was my chance, but where could I go? Orderlies patrolled the entire village, not to mention that gate. There had to be a phone somewhere. If I got my hands on some evidence these people were all deranged cultists, the police might not dismiss me as a crackpot. Again. My eyes scanned the room. In the filing cabinets, there was nothing but medical charts and case notes. The desk was mostly stuffed with Redburn flyers and admin paperwork. The heavy door in the corner wouldn't open, although that posed a little challenge to my combo multipurpose drill, and Angela said that I wouldn't need it. The loud screams of the divots made me cringe, terrified that an orderly might hear the racket and spoil my plan. Luckily, the sound went unnoticed. I lifted the handle away, took a deep breath, pushed open the door and then stepped into a thick darkness. The only light coming from my torch. A cold draught seeped into my old bones as I searched the room. It was completely bare except for a large wooden box propped up against the far wall. An expert craftsman must have carved the whole thing. My fingers glided smoothly across the top. Only when I leaned forward and studied the object up close did it become clear what I had actually touched. A casket. My knees began to rattle. Why the heck would the Redburn staff keep that next to Miss Flanagan's office? Had they picked it out for me? As I reeled my hand away, my fingers must have nudged a latch, because all of a sudden, the lid shivered open several inches. Four sharp fingers reached out of the narrow gap. Who's there? Called a groggy voice from within, like someone who had been shaken awake. As the lid swung open with a horrible creak, I had to bite my bottom lip otherwise. I might have shrieked like Angela did when she was six and thought that there were monsters hiding in her closet. Miss Flanagan pulled herself out of the casket, except she looked different. She had a shrunken face, stretched taut over a well-defined skull, and nails like a fan of knives capping her bony hands. Who's there? She said. 
her voice carrying deep into the room. And as she spoke, I glimpsed a mouth stuffed with curved fangs whiter than porcelain. Before there was even time to gather my thoughts, her eyes, those dazzling silver eyes, opened wide. You, she snarled. Spinning away, I made a desperate break for the door. Miss Flanagan flew forward, collided with my back, and sent us both careening forward into the adjacent room, where her body flinched and spasmed. We had landed a square in the middle of a square of light, thrown across the floor by the window on our left-hand side. Smoke billowed from Miss Flanagan's hands as she shielded the charred half of her face before recoiling into the shadow of the other room. Still gasping for air, I crawled over to the table and hoisted myself up. Flesh bubbled and burst across Miss Flanagan's wrists and palms, but not for long. Within seconds, as if by magic, her wounds healed themselves up. Mr. Donnelly, she said sharply, come here. My muscles locked up briefly, not looking like her former human self. She beckoned me toward her with a single bony finger. Instead, I scrambled toward the door, snatching my tool bag along the way. She repeated the commands more forcefully each time, but whatever spell she had cast before had already been broken. Those sharp edges in her voice didn't touch me. I'm going to tear open your throat and drink your insides, she screamed. That sentence chased me into the auditorium, where I slammed the door shut and paused to catch a breather. Okay, Miss Flanagan was a vampire. That meant vampires existed, and I was trapped inside an unescapable fortress with one. Things started making more sense. The residents weren't in a cult, they were puppets. The plate in my skull gave me some degree of immunity to her hypnotism, so she had decided to bump me off. But how did any of this help? Even if there was a way to contact the outside world, nobody would ever believe me. Neck acne came through the door on the opposite side of the room. What's all the racket? He shouted. And then, you were supposed to wait for me. Get back in there. What that thing? Not a chance. Neck acne had a good six inches on me, and me a good forty years on him, but still, I couldn't let him offer me up like an appetizer. Hands quivering, I fumbled through my tool belt as he came forward. When there were only a few meters between me and the lanky guy, I held up a canister of WD-40 and I sprayed it into his sunken eyes. Immediately, he gave a shrill squeal then dropped to his knees, hands pressed tight against his leaky eyes. I hurried out into the corridor before he had a chance to recover. Casually strolling past orderlies and nurses so as to not make them suspicious, I made my way through the maze of halls. Two bends later, I happened across Potato Face who said, Weren't you supposed to wait in Miss Flanagan's office? May I change the plans? I replied, my voice all nervous. The boiler in the basement needs repaired. Hmm, let me check that with. From my belt, I grabbed a rubber mallet and swung it in a fierce downward arc. As it collided with nothing but growing, a sound escaped the man's mouth like a chipmunk huffing helium. He keeled forward with a faint whimper. Just a few steps from the front entrance, a two-note alarm began to blare. Receptionist went into a frenzied panic while I continued outside at a brisk pace. 
Above my head, the sky fumed with orange and red clouds. Vampires could come out after sundown, but there was nothing stopping the Redburn staff from coming after me. Given my advancing age, I needed a head start. I grabbed a hammer from my bag and tapped a nail into the frame, pinning the door shut. Now they would have to go all the way around back. What next? They patrolled the front gate and I would break my neck climbing the fence. So seeing no other choice, I hurried home. Halfway down the street, the cat blitzed out from behind a willow tree and followed me along, meowing nonstop as he followed me into my house. The sun had already half-dipped beneath the horizon, but never mind Miss Dracula. Those dang orderlies had a spare key in case of emergencies. With the speed and vigor of a man half my age, I disassembled the kitchen furniture, harvested wooden boards, and haphazardly nailed them across all the doors and ground floor windows. Before sealing the final one in the lounge, I glanced down at my furry companion. Trouble's on the way, little fella. Last chance to make a break for it. He gave me a blank stare. Uh, suit yourself. Taking advantage of those last few minutes of daylight, I wrote Angela a note. Would she ever read it? Uh, probably not, but still. There were some things that needed to be said. Darling, always know that I love you. I'm so proud of you and the kids. You've got all the best qualities of me and your mother. Don't be sad, because now I'm with her again. Love, Dad. Outside, the sun finally slipped beneath the horizon. Either Miss Flanagan or her band of merry men would arrive any second now. Altogether, every light fixture in the house went out. I peeked through the narrow gap between two boards and saw orderlies and nurses positioned along the street, arms by their sides. Neck acne and potato face stood just beyond the hedge. Why didn't they try breaking in yet? Five seconds later, a silhouette passed above their heads, draping the group in a huge shadow. A moment later, glass shattered somewhere upstairs. By my feet, the cat's hair stood on end as though receiving an electrical shock. I think that he regretted not making a hasty escape when he had the chance. I scooped him into my arms. Upstairs, floorboards creaked and groaned as something traveled through the bedroom into the hallway. The ceiling seemed to breathe, creaking like my old joints. Outside, the Redburn staff closed in on the house, chanting in perfect unison. Here at Redburn Village, we work hard to ensure all residents enjoy their retirement and relaxed, peaceful environment. Teeth chattering, I slowly shuffled into the hall and stood at the foot of the stairs. In my arms, the cat trembled fiercely forcing me to continually readjust my grab. Our assisted living facilities enable you to enjoy maximum independence but with a safety net of highly skilled nurses available 24 hours a day, offering you and your loved ones complete peace of mind. A long twisted shadow engulfed the upstairs landing. Were those wings? My feet became blocks of cement as the shadow morphed, gradually becoming more human. And then Miss Flanagan appeared and said, Tis, 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 Mr. Donnelly. Whatever are we going to do with you? Her eyes flicked toward my hands. And look, you've got vermin with you. I could have sworn that I disposed of that flea bag months ago. That sent the furball into overdrive. After wrestling free of my grip, 
He bolted down the hall and into the kitchen, really taking her time with every step. Miss Flanagan let her fingers scrape across the wall, etching in deep marks. What's going on? I shouted. What is this place? She chuckled. Well, this is Redburn, the greatest retirement home in Ireland. Ask any of our residents. At the raise of her hands, the chants grew louder. It's a glorious place to wake up each morning. Cozy, friendly, warm. It's a glorious place to wake up each morning. Cozy, friendly, and warm. So you go around hypnotizing the elderly to do your bidding. Is that it? Are you raising some sort of demon clan? She threw her head back and cackled. Please, I simply need to feed. Feed. Halfway down the steps as she paused. I've been alive for thousands of years, Mr. Donnelly. For centuries, I've traveled to Eastern Europe feeding on peasants. But you humans are a suspicious bunch, always running me out of your towns and villages sooner or later. Even in the big cities, there was only so long that I could last before the ground shrunk beneath my feet. So I had an idea. A retirement home. People die in those all the time. Rather than feed on humans who had aroused suspicion... I could simply pick off once already had one foot in the grave. They aren't as tasty, but angry mobs don't pick up a torch or pitchforks when they die. That's sick. Oh, please, she snorted. And then her eyes happened across a picture of Mary mounted on the wall. Tell me, is this Mrs. Donnelly? I uncomfortably shifted from one foot to the other. Well, good news. The two of you are about to be reunited. She glided down the stairs, in a movement so smooth I almost didn't notice it until it was already too late. At the very last second, I rushed into the lounge and slammed the door shut. Through the door, Miss Flanagan shouted, Little pig, little pig, please let me in. I had to do something but what? All they had were my tools and Mary's antique cutlery. Wait. The door crashed open with enough force to dent the wall. And then Miss Flanagan entered the dim room, her fangs bared. And quickly, I grabbed the torch from my pack, flicked on the beam, and took aim. My attacker left to the ceiling with frightening grace. I tried to pin her down, following the sounds of claws chipping away at the ceiling, but she was too fast. The best that I could manage were brief glimpses of silver eyes. And judging from all the laughter, she quite enjoyed our little game of cat and mouse. With her hands hooked into claws, Miss Flanagan lunged at me from the corner of the room. Her nails pinwheeled across my face, opening red stripes across my forehead and cheek, just as I got the beam angled correctly. There was a sound like bacon sizzling on the grill as we both spun onto the floor. The torch whirled around toward the far side of the room, outside of reach. Miss Flanagan grimaced. Black smoke billowed from her forehead. While I fumbled through my belt, found a pair of pliers, pushed myself to my knees and then pinched them close around her right fang. With every less drop of old man strength in my body, I pulled, squeezed, and twisted. Blinded by rage, Miss Flanagan thumped me in the chest with more force than a sledgehammer. I experienced a moment of complete weightlessness, brought crash into an end by the back of my skull hitting the shelf, the same one that decorated with Mary's things. Black dots swirled in front of my eyes as I spilled to the floor. 
A single vein was still pinched between my pliers. Already recovered from her burns, Miss Flanagan probed the gap in her mouth, using a long tongue that tapered off into a fine point. Her eyes narrowed. You made a big mistake, Mr. Donnelly. Just for that, I'm going to hunt down your entire family. You've got a daughter and some bratty grandchildren, right? Oh, it's been so long since I've had a decent meal. You have no idea. I'm going to rip their throats out and pull out their guts in steaming bundles. But first... Her jaw popped open like a trapdoor. Without warning, Miss Flanagan sprung forward and seized my neck, her warm tongue dragging along my cheek, a tentacle probing every inch of exposed flesh. A lone fang hovered inches above my throat. I felt powerless to stop it. This was the end. Forty years earlier, I still wouldn't have stood a chance. But then, a blurred, hissing object collided with the side of her head. The cat, the little critter, latched onto Miss Flanagan, frantically slashing her horrible face. She whirled around, attempting to pry the brave little critter off, but its claws were embedded way too deep. Dark blood seeped out of her forehead and throat as the cat carved out patterns of diagonal gashes. The pair waltzed around, banging into walls and tipping over the bookshelf, which made Mary's antique cutlery set crashed onto the ground and emptied its contents across the floor. All those tools, each made from pure silver, lay agonizingly close, but my muscles burned with age and fatigue. As the world turned all blurry, possibly from a concussion, the orderly's chant sounded far in the distance. At Redburn, you won't just live. You won't just live. Above my head, the shelf gave way. Even expert workmanship couldn't withstand a collision with a fellow my size. A picture of Mary toppled onto my lap. The muscles in my arms twanged wildly as I grabbed the photo and kissed her cheek. I'm so sorry, darling. I couldn't save them. I love you. My eyelids closed over, ready to embrace the end. But then, for the first time since she had passed, I heard Mary's voice, loud and angry. Are you freaking kidding me, Thomas? I opened my eyes. Did I accidentally marry some lazy bum who'd take this kind of crap? Didn't you hear her? That monster's gonna eat our grandbabies. Get off your butt, you lazy son of a gun. Before me, the furball held on as best it could, hissing and fighting and tearing deep into Miss Flanagan's lips. Well, if you could stand up to a vampire, so could I. Time to dust away the cobwebs from these old bones. With memories of Mary fresh in my mind, I reached forward and fumbled through her antique cutlery. Forks and spoons, nothing but freaking forks and spoons. Toward the bottom of the pile, though, I found a knife, finally. But would it be sharp enough to get the job done? Only one way to find out. Out in the hall, something hefty like Potato Face hurled itself against the front door while other Redburn staff rattled and drummed the windows. Bony talons reached between boards and swiped at the air. Now their mistress felt threatened. They wanted in. You won't just live. You won't just live. The drill lay close by. I grabbed some wire from my pack while Miss Flanagan successfully pried the cat off her face and hurled him against the side wall. That beautiful critter collided with a dull thumb, fell onto the floor, and then flipped itself right side up, 
As I worked, Miss Flanagan dropped onto all fours, her snout elongating. Every inch of exposed flesh became black and furry. Fingers webbed themselves together in leathery skin, connected her underarms with her back. That was the limit for my little ally, who blitzed out of the room, at which point the bad creature refocused its attention on me. Grunting heavily, I stood, armed and ready. In that moment, the clock rolled back 30 years. I was a young buck in his prime. A blast of hot air from two powerful nostrils blasted me in the face. With a single flap of her wings, Miss Flanagan flew across the room, seized me by the chest and rose up into the air, and then slammed us onto the brutal, unforgiving floor. The creature weighed more than a dang Ford Escort. The very second that we landed that horrible phase, it began reverting to human form. Only this time Miss Flanagan looked thinner, more delicate. As she glanced down at her torso, her eyes opened wider than dinner plates. Stabbed into her midsection was the end of my power drill, onto which I had tied the knife. She dropped us with such force the blade had punctured a hole in her side. Still flat on my back, I squeezed the trigger. The drill met some resistance and rotated slowly, gradually tearing apart Miss Flanagan, before quickly picking up speed. As she rolled over, the tremendous pressure against my lungs eased. Outside, the chants trailed off mid-word and the rattling had stopped. Blotting out the pain, I found my feet and grabbed the torch from the far side of the room. No, please, Miss Flanagan rasped, powerless to do anything beside rotate her silver eyes toward me. I pointed the torch directly at her face, took three deep breaths, and then said, Let this be a lesson to you. Never threaten a man's family. At the flick of the switch, she exploded into flames. The embers kicked up a large cloud of dry dust that went everywhere, and when the beast was finding nothing more than a pottery stain, I collapsed into the armchair. The entire world took a deep breath inside. I heard Miss Flanagan's mindless army groan outside, all deeply confused about how they had got there. The cat limped into the room, one paw curled up against his chest. I gently scooped him into my lap. A photo of Mary lay in the center of the room, and now she almost seemed to be smiling. In my mind's eye, I heard her sweet, sweet laugh, and suddenly, for the first time since her diagnosis, I found myself laughing too. As a group of residents and I strolled through the front gate, we waved at the burly attendant. How was the view from the summit? He had asked us. Worth the effort, one of my companions had called back. Since the encounter, the staff at Redburn and all of its inhabitants had been much more agreeable, livelier. So far as I could tell, Miss Flanagan's trance lifted the instant she had died. Everybody woke up from a sort of terrible dream once they couldn't remember much about it. After a few weeks, since nobody had the slightest idea where the former boss had disappeared to, a new manager took over and things became a lot more fun around here. Down the street as I parted ways with the group, one of my friends said, Hey, I'll see you for poker tonight then. Absolutely, I replied. Might be a little late though. Angela's bringing the grandkids over. They've got some new Nintendo that they want to show me. Back home, the one-eyed cat skulked around my garden, meowing impatiently, one paw heavily bandaged, 
It looked at me as if to say, Hey, it's almost noon. Where's my lunch? All right, all right, I said chuckling. Shortly after becoming a vampire killer, I had rushed the cat to a vet who had wrapped up its busted leg and promised me that she would be okay. That sure caught me off guard. In the kitchen, I emptied a tin of cat food into a bowl. Etched along the outer edge was the name that I had christened my new companion. The most beautiful one that I could think of. Mary. And that, my friends, is how I rediscovered a new zest for life by checking into a retirement home. So, if you're around Dublin and looking for a place that'll let you enjoy an elegant lifestyle in a tranquil environment, with a safe unit of highly skilled nurses available 24 hours a day, have I got the place for you. And trust me, at Redburn, you won't just live. You'll live to the fullest. I'm a park ranger and something is stalking the local hikers. Written by Horror Writer 1717. I'm a park ranger, but I'm leaving my name and the name of the park out of this post intentionally. The names of all those involved have been changed as well. I needed to get this story out there but cannot rely on conventional avenues, so that's why I'm posting it here. I could lose my job or much worse, but this story has to be told. I owe it to Catherine. I arrived at the ranger station like any other day. I was given my section of the park to patrol. Unfortunately, the park is massive and my section usually includes about half of it, so there isn't much chance for leisurely strolls on the trails. I hopped in my work vehicle, a ten-year-old 4x4, and headed out to see if anybody needed assistance. It didn't take long to find someone. At the first campground, there was a man who couldn't get his camper started. A quick jump got him up and rolling. Next was a couple needing directions, then an overturned canoe. I had only made it a few miles through the park. I was going to have to move if I hoped to make a full route today. I managed to grab a few quick bites of lunch and put some miles on without anyone needing help when the call came over the radio. There was a hiker that found something and I needed to go check it out. A half hour later, I was talking to a middle-aged woman who had made a concerning discovery. She found a hat and a note on the trail. I read the note. I'm writing this note and leaving it behind because I'm not sure what's happening. The five of us friends have been planning this trip forever, ever since long before we had graduated. But it always seemed like something came up at the last minute, and one or more of us couldn't go. For a while, I was almost convinced that some outside force was working against us. That we were cursed to not go camping together until we were all too old to enjoy it. I could picture Devin now. He would still go even if he was so old that he had to use a walker on the trail. He's always up for camping. I think the guy carries a loaded backpack in his car with him everywhere that he goes. Adrienne got here right behind us, followed soon after by Dean. Of course, Terry was the last one to show. And we started up the trail in great spirits. Three miles in the sun was just starting to heat up. We were making good time towards the rustic campground when Devin decided to take a detour. He said that he had heard about an old trail that no one used anymore, 
and he wanted to check it out. I said that we should just keep going the way that we were, but I was outvoted. I honestly don't think Terry's vote should have counted, since he was obviously stoned and Devin just bullied him into saying yes. We came to a spot with a large stone off to the side of the trail. Devin said that it was the trailhead, but I didn't see any trail. He led us through some heavy brush, but on the other side it cleared out and we could see the faint impression of an overgrown trail. I went last and left my hat on the stone in case we got lost and needed to be rescued. I think that's exactly where we're heading, straight toward lost. I'll leave this note under my hat and hope that somebody finds it. I asked the woman to show me where she had found it and she showed me. Three miles later, I was staring at the rock that I hoped I would never see again. I radioed my location to the station and told them that if they didn't hear from me in a couple of hours to send a search party to the old abandoned trail. I wish I would have brought my supplies with me, my backpack and my sidearm, but they were three miles away and I didn't know how long these kids had been on this trail. I knew that wasted time could mean the difference between life and death. At least I had my knife, a flashlight, and binoculars. So I thanked the woman, placed the red hat back on the stone just in case, and headed into the heavy brush. Once through the initial overgrowth, the trail became visible. Old memories flashed through my head, ones that I never wanted to think of again. I took a deep breath and I headed down the trail. It was overgrown for the first mile or so and then it opened up into a field. I could see people had walked through before me by the way the weeds were partially trampled. As I walked through, a deer jumped ahead of me, startling me. Until that moment I didn't realize how jumpy I was. I tried to settle down and tell myself that these kids were just lost and that I could catch up to them and get them out. And telling myself that didn't make the memories go away. I entered a clearing with a fallen log and another note with a rock sitting on it. Okay, I think I'm being silly. This trail isn't so bad. Maybe I was wrong. Devin seems to know where he's going. I just can't shake this feeling that we're being watched. Sometimes I'll look around and I swear that I see a face disappear behind a tree. Am I being paranoid? Maybe if the birds were to start singing again, that would lighten my mood but I haven't heard a bird or any other animal for a while. I wonder why they're being so quiet. Are they afraid of us? On another note, Terry seems to be brooding more than usual. Maybe he forgot to bring enough of his stash to last the trap. And Devin is in his glory since everybody has to rely on him for directions. Adrian and Dean seem to be along for the ride, although I have noticed Dean looking around at the trees as well. Maybe I'll ask him if he sees anything. If you're trying to track us down, I hope we aren't being too much of a bother. I just have this feeling. I folded the note and stuck it in my pocket, and then prayed she was wrong about being followed. I pushed on, beginning to miss my backpack with these supplies in it, especially the water bottles. The trees provided some shade so the sunlight wasn't shining directly on me. But hiking is always thirsty work. The birds chirping in the trees made me almost forget about the desperate mission that I was on to save these five kids. My mind wandered back to the kid that I couldn't save. It had been shortly after I had started as a park ranger. 
an 11-year-old boy had gotten lost on this very trail. His parents searched frantically for him before calling us to look. I remember hoping to be the one to find him, as we formed search parties and searched on, in and around every inch of the trail. In the end, I got my wish. I found him, but I wish I hadn't. I pushed the memory to the back of my mind and I focused on the trail. It was starting to fade. The trampling of feet wasn't making enough of a difference and I was starting to lose my way. Out here, that can be deadly. I kept moving forward and finally regained the trail just in time to reach the fork. I looked back and forth from one choice to the other and couldn't see a difference between the two. I searched for any broken twigs or plants that would give me a hint, but there were none. Just when I was about to give up and flip a coin, I saw a piece of paper in the weeds, barely visible. I dug it out and I read it. Okay, it seems like we have a dilemma. A fork in the road, as it were. You would think that I would be happy to see the doubt in Devin's eyes as he looked from one choice to the other, but you'd be wrong. It made my confidence plummet. It made me think that we were never getting out of here. Everyone's running out of water. Devin yelled at us for not conserving, but I saw him drink the last of his two. He ranted and raved at us for a while, but we all knew that he was just mad because he didn't know what to do. In the end, he flipped a coin. We all did our best not to laugh. Adriana's reaching the end of her rope with Devin and his attitude. Dean has been playing peacemaker, trying to keep them from going at it too much. Terry has been way too quiet. I haven't seen him light up once. Something's up with him, but every time I ask, he says that it's nothing. The birds still aren't singing, and it's starting to really bother me. The strange feeling that I have hasn't gone away. I asked Dean if he had seen anything strange, but he won't talk about it. We've been on this trail for a while. I'm hoping to come to the end soon. By the way, in case the note got moved or blown around, we took the left trail. I was panicked by the end of reading that note and so relieved she mentioned which trail to take. I radioed in and reported that I was on the trail of the missing hikers. I mentioned the fork and taking the left side. I was told that there was no search party going on yet and that I was the only one looking for these kids. It was the complete opposite of years ago looking for that kid. Everyone was searching. I know that we combed every inch of that wilderness. But that's the thing about the woods. You can search every nook and cranny, but something can still stay hidden. The sun was going down, and I still had no idea how close I was to catching up to these kids. I could stumble across them in the next clearing, or they could be hours ahead of me. I met with the woman who showed me the hat and the note in the afternoon. If they started out around daybreak, they could be a good five or six hours ahead of me. If the leader is so driven to continue, it's hard to say how far they might be. I continued following the trail until I came to a fallen tree across the river. I looked both ways along the edge of the water but saw no trail so I made my way across the tree. I could picture the debate the kids had when they got here. I chuckled at the thought of Devin having to convince them to go across. I believe I made up a lot of time with that single crossing. I jumped onto the water and drank my fill, and then climbed back up, feeling much better, 
it was tough to pick up the trail line on the other side, so I was glad to find a note sticking to a branch. Oh my gosh, Devin just about came unglued when he got to that tree over the river. He hopped up on it right away and started across, but the rest of us weren't so sure that the trail led that way. We asked him how the trail could be planned with a fallen tree as a part of it. He sputtered and stopped and told us how lost we'd be without him. Dean had finally had enough and told him that we were lost because of him. I seriously thought that Devin was going to take a swing at him, until Terry of all people came to his side and told Devin to shut up. The rest of us all came together and told Devin that he could keep leading us as long as he stopped acting like a petty tyrant. Well, he didn't take that well. In the end, he told us that we could all go to heck. He sat on the log and refused to move. Eventually, after we took a break and refilled our water bottles on the river, Dean said that we should get going and let us across the tree. Devin followed along, acting like a whipped puppy. Dean and I talked about the disappearing face that we had seen a while back, but neither of us had seen it again. At least the birds are back to singing, though. I chuckled, figuring that Devin would be a big baby over the whole thing. But after the chuckle came concern. Disposed leaders are usually dangerous. I wondered how much offense Devin had taken and if he would be looking to get some payback in some small or large way. And darkness was coming on fast in the woods, so I had to make a decision. Camp for the night or keep going. If I camped, I could defend against the predators that lurked in the darkness. But if I kept moving, there would be a good chance that I could stumble across the group before daybreak. It wasn't much of a decision. These kids that I didn't even know that I had plunged headfirst into the woods without even my backpack of supplies. Of course, I was going to try to catch up with them. If I had done that years back, would that kid still be alive? Such thoughts nagged me. Most days I kept them at bay, but here in the same forest, close to these spots where I found them, I needed to focus. If I'm going to keep after them, then I need to get going. I stepped off the trail to go to the bathroom, and I heard a metallic snap at the same time. I felt an intense pain shoot up my leg. I looked down and yep, I had stepped into a bear trap. I screamed and fell to the ground and rocked back and forth in agony. After a few minutes, I focused on getting the trap off my leg. I found a branch and I pried the trap open, screaming the entire time. I managed to pull the trap off my leg and I threw it to the side. I really didn't want to take my boot off, but I had to see the damage. It took every ounce of effort that I could muster to unlace the boot and pull it off. My leg was purple. I fell along the wound very gently, but there didn't seem to be any break. That didn't mean that I wasn't going to be limping for the next month, though. But it did mean that I would buy this brand of boots for the rest of my life. It took much more effort and some more screaming to put the boot back on but I knew that I needed to keep moving. I laced up the boot and found a sturdy branch to use as a crotch. I struggled to my feet and took my first few ginger steps. Once I got into a rhythm, it got easier, but I couldn't walk as fast as I had been. Of course, when I was at my weakest was when I heard footsteps in the trees close to me. I knew there was a predator around just because it could sense that I was vulnerable. I leaned against a tree and held my crotch ready as a weapon. The footsteps came closer. 
They paused as if they knew that I was ready, and then they slowly continued stalking me. They were deliberate but slow. Each step seemed measured, as if waiting for the right moment to strike. I heard it right next to the tree that I was hiding behind. I whipped around as best as I could and I raised my crotch to strike. A deer stared at me for a heartbeat and then turned and ran through the forest. I collapsed against the tree and slid down to the ground, allowing the adrenaline to bleed off. I don't remember falling asleep. I woke to sandpaper scraping the side of my face. I opened my eyes and there was a bear beside me licking my cheek. I freaked out, screamed, and rolled away from it. The bear wasn't ready for that reaction, so it startled and it ran away. I slowed my rapid breathing and I looked around. It was dark. There were thin shafts of moonlight beaming through the trees, providing a little light. I checked my watch and it was nearly four in the morning. I rode slowly and gingerly on my injured ankle, took the small flashlight out of my pocket, and prayed that it still worked. My prayers were answered when the beam shone brightly through the woods. I panned around slowly, trying to get my bearings. After a moment, I found the trail and I started hobbling towards it. The nightly noises were a comfort, at least if the crickets were chirping, and the rest of the forest was singing its nightly tune. That meant predators weren't around. I stumbled and fell, hitting my injured ankle against a rock. The pain overwhelmed me and I screamed. After a few minutes of recovery, I got up and continued at a slower pace, paying more attention to the ground. I chided myself for falling asleep and losing so much time. At least the trail was easy to follow. I continued on through the night hoping that I wasn't too late. I started thinking about the boy that I had failed to rescue and what would happen if I failed to rescue these kids. I'm sure the rangers department would say that I did my best. I wasn't worried about them, it was me. Would I be able to forgive myself for letting something happen again? My thoughts were interrupted when I stumbled into a clearing. Not just any clearing, they were the remnants of a fire. There were impressions from tent pegs being pulled out of the ground. All around were these signs of a very recent campsite, including a tent that was still set up. I got so excited that I nearly fell over my crotch looking around for signs of anything. The tent was a mixed blessing. It was very ominous that it was still here while the others were gone, but I was able to find some supplies to take along for my search. The most important was food. I shoved some protein bars in my pocket while devouring some beef jerky. I also grabbed two bottles of water from the pack. I stumbled across a note sitting under a rock beside the smoldering fire. Before I sat, I held my hand out to the fire. It was still warm, but the embers were nearly dead. It had been hours since it was first lit. If I hadn't taken my unintentional nap, I would have caught up with them. There was nothing that I could do but sit by the dying fire and read the note hoping that there was good news. We found this clearing and decided to camp. Everyone was tired from walking and the mood was somber because no one seemed to know where we were. All of us had been hiking in this forest before, but none of us had ever seen or heard of this trail. We set up our tents and started a fire, and then had some supper and sat around. 
No one really felt like talking, so I tried to get the ball rolling by asking Terry why he was late. He hesitated, but at my prompting, eventually, he told us that he had hit an animal with his car on the way here. I asked if it was a deer, and he said, No, it was way too big to be a deer. He said that it walked upright on two legs and that it was massive, like eight feet tall, covered in brown hair. He had swerved to miss it, but the strangest thing was, it seemed to try to jump in front of him anyway, like it wanted him to stop. We all listened with rapt attention. Just then, off in the distance, we heard a scream. We all froze. Devin started spouting off and yelling at Terry for trying to scare us, and then he stormed off. Dean tried to stop him, but he pushed him away and disappeared in the woods. The rest of us talked, trying to decide if we should go look for him, but in the end, we figured that we should just let him go and cool off. A short while later, we heard a rustling off in the distance and a muffled cry. We huddled a little closer together and went on high alert. Our eyes darted back and forth as we searched the impenetrable wall of trees surrounding us, looking for any sign of a predator. Right then, the strangest thing happened. All the nightly noises stopped. The crickets, the squirrels, the owls, every sound that you usually hear in the forest at night simply ceased. It was unnerving. For a moment I wondered if I hadn't gone deaf. Our eyes darted all around us in the darkness. We huddled closer to the fire. Dean pulled out his hunting knife. None of us said a word. It was like if we spoke, something bad would happen. Somehow, whatever caused the noises to stop, it would find us if we spoke. Someone did speak, though, just not who we expected. Why are you here? Came a raspy and deep voice that seemed to echo from everywhere. We looked all around and finally a man stepped into the light. He was large, well over six feet tall with broad shoulders, and older, maybe in his fifties or sixties. He was also wearing a park ranger's uniform. It looked old and shabby like he had been wearing it for a long time. There were no name tag or park patches either. At that point, we didn't care. We had been rescued. We clamored around him, saying how glad we were that he had found us. We told him about going on the trail and how we weren't sure where we even were. The man listened and then slowly said, You shouldn't be here. We all looked at each other, and I'm sure the others thought the same as me. No crap, we shouldn't be here. We just told you that. He continued to look at us from one to the other as though sizing us up. I was starting to get a little uncomfortable with the silence. I would have thought that he would offer to guide us, but he didn't. He kept staring. I think everyone else was getting a little edgy as well, when Dean asked if he could point us in the right direction. He looked at Dean as if deciding to answer him or not. I can guide you, he said, but first you should have some rest. We all agreed that the day had been long and stressful, and we decided to take his advice and turn in. We offered him some food and water, but he refused, saying that he wasn't hungry. We each went to our tents and we laid down. Before I settled in and finished this note, I popped my head back out of my tent to check on our guide. He was sitting by the fire, staring into the orange coals. 
I thought that I heard him mumbling or maybe humming something softly. I quietly zipped up my tent and went to sleep. Sometime later, somebody banged at my tent. I woke and unzipped it to find the ranger with a strange look in his eyes. We need to go. Why? I said rubbing the sleep out of my eyes. It's not safe here. He said with an edge of panic in his voice. I popped back into my tent to change and then came out and met with everyone. They were all in states of a semi-consciousness as well. Everyone but the ranger seemed to be confused. Pack it up. We need to leave. He said a little more forcefully. I was about to protest when I heard a piercing scream in the distance. His head shot up and he stared in the direction of the sound. Move it, he said. Pack up. We didn't need to be told again. The scream brought us all fully awake. We tore down our tents in record time and packed everything into our backpacks. As I was finishing up, I noticed Devin's tent was still up. Where's Devin? I said. Who's Devin? The ranger said. He's another one of our friends. He went off into the woods alone right before you got here. He didn't come back, the ranger said. Well, should we go look for him? The ranger extended his arms and did a slow circle. Which way would you go? He said. I understood his point. How would we know where he had gone? If he was still on the path or not. It just seemed like we should do something. What about his gear? I said. Do we take it with us? The ranger looked at me like he was annoyed at having to answer such questions. No, leave it here in case he comes back. He said. He'll need his supplies. I'm not sure if I'll keep leaving notes or not now that we have the ranger to guide us. Whoever finds this, please look for Devin and make sure that he's okay. A ranger? All the rangers at this park are in their 30s or 40s. Maybe it was someone who retired and was just roaming around out there. But why would he be in a ranger outfit? I'm sitting here by the dying embers of the fire with a tent set up in front of me. It was very tempting to take a rest. If they're in the hands of a capable ranger, I could get some rest before the long hike back out of here. But I knew that I'd already taken my rest for the night. If not for that, I would have been here hours ago, probably before the other ranger. I set out again, feeling tired but determined. The campsite made me more hopeful than I had been all day. At least they were together and thinking like campers. If only I knew who this ranger was. The sun was an hour away from rising, so I took out my flashlight to follow the trail. I zipped up the tent before I left, just in case its owner did come back. I wouldn't want animals getting in and taking everything. It's bad enough when injured park rangers do it. The trail stayed level for a while as dawn peeked over the trees. The trail started heading upward, which was bad news for me and my bum ankle. It made things harder but I had my trusty makeshift crutch to help me. Don crept into the forest, giving me a little assistance. At least I wouldn't have to waste a hand holding the flashlight. As the climb grew steeper, the trail grew more narrow. At times, it was only the width of one foot. I held onto trees and whatever I could as I scaled the extremely narrow trail. At the most difficult, I paused and seriously considered turning back. As I looked around for any other way to keep going, I saw a brightly colored fabric at the bottom of the ravine. 
I carefully balanced as I took out my binoculars and I looked. It was a backpack and attached to it was the body of a girl in her early 20s. She looked like she had hit her head on the rocks at the bottom. Her face had not looking much better. Her clothes were ripped and soaked in red. There was no doubt that an animal had gotten to her. The only question was, was she alive when it had started feeding on her? I looked away but felt my determination double to find these missing kids. They might be with a ranger but they were still in terrible danger. I slowly continued up the narrow trail. At times I was sure the ground would give out from under me and that I would share the same fate as the poor unfortunate girl at the bottom of the ravine. It was then that I remembered my radio. I tried to call in and report the location of the body but the only response that I got was static. I determined to try again when I got to the top of the trail. It was yet another motivation to keep going, to be careful and to survive. It seemed like hours at a snail's pace working my way up the side of that ravine. Finally, I clawed my way over the edge to the top. I rolled over onto solid ground and I lay there for a few minutes. Once I caught my breath, I got up slowly and painfully. I hadn't done my ankle any favors. I limped toward what looked like the trail and I began following. It wasn't long before I came across the remnants of another campsite. The fire was a little warmer than the last one. I stoked it up, threw some more wood on, and got it going. I knew that I needed some rest. I searched around and found a note, and then sat down on the log by the fire to read it. I can't believe Adrian's gone. We had started up this steep ravine and the trail kept getting more narrow. I asked the ranger if there was any other way around, but he just glared at me and said no. We all struggled with our heavy packs on our backs. At one point, I was on all fours, just trying to keep from sliding into the ravine. And that's when it happened. Adrienne was having trouble keeping her feet on the trail. She kept slipping. I reached out and helped her balance a few times. Being right in front of me, I kept an eye on her whenever I could. That wasn't nearly as much as I wanted because I was watching my own feet. She slipped once and I tried to grab her but she had tipped over and the weight of her backpack had dragged her over the side. I watched in horror as she had tumbled down into the ravine, bouncing off trees as she went. I saw her skull make a solid impact several times as she tumbled to the bottom and slid to a stop. I couldn't see if she was still breathing or not as I called her name. She didn't move. I called for the ranger in front of us and I pointed to her unmoving body. He stared at her for a long time. I don't know if he was trying to see if she was alive or not, but he told us to keep going up the trail to the top and that he would go and check on her. I watched as he carefully made his way back down to the nearly sheer slope. We kept moving forward as instructed. He was only halfway down when we had made it to the top. I was a wreck. I was so happy that we had made it but sad for Adrienne. I didn't hold out much hope that the ranger was going to come trotting into camp with her on his back, saying that she had only had a few bumps and scratches. We started a fire and then sat around it in a stupor. Finally, Terry came over and talked to me. Look, I understand she was your friend, but she was ours too, he said. We need to work together to get out of here. For them. That's so stupid that it makes sense. 
I said with the remnants of a smile. It was then the ranger had reappeared. He sat by the fire and didn't say a word. There was something in his eyes. It wasn't sadness, but I don't know exactly what it was. We knew that she wasn't coming back. We rested for a little while, and then started out on the trail again. If you're following us, I hope you're being careful. Stay safe. Wow, this girl is something else. With all she's gone through, she still wants me to be safe. I hope that I find her. I think she would make a good ranger. My guilty conscience jumped up on my back and yelled at me. How can you sit around and rest when that poor girl just lost her friend and needs your help? I knew that it was right. I just didn't know why that other ranger was being so careless. I struggled to get up, kicked out the fire and started after them. The daylight was dimming, but it was only 8 in the morning. I looked up and saw why. Storm clouds were overtaking the sky. Yet another reason I wish that I would have brought my backpack. The raindrops hit like a cold slap in the face. Even though it was still September. Out here in the mountains, the weather can change in a heartbeat. We weren't at the top of the mountain. But in the middle was enough for the weather change to make me shiver. Now that we were out of the ravine, I tried my radio again, but it was just static. I knew that there were some places where the radio inexplicably wouldn't work. I just hoped to get away from the interference before it was too late. The trail was clear in front of me, but that was little comfort when walking in open fields with no rain cover. All those trees that I tromped through, and now in the rain, I have wide open spaces. I would say that someone doesn't like me. The rain just didn't pass like a spring shower. It poured so hard that it became difficult to see in front of me. For a long time, I trudged through the rain. At times, it felt like I was walking in place. The mud was starting to cake on my boots and then my salvation appeared. In front of me on the trail was a tent. I called out before I unzipped the tent and I let myself in. I flopped down to the wonderful dry floor and then quickly turned and zipped the entrance back up. I breathed a sigh of relief, but as I did, a stench hit my nose. I looked over at the sleeping bag and it was full. Hey, I'm sorry to barge in like this, but I needed to get out of the rain, I said. No response. I nudged the person in the bag. It tipped to the side and rocked right back. And that's when I noticed these splotches of red that had soaked through the bag. I didn't want to see, but I pulled the top of the sleeping bag away from the person's face. The bad part was how they no longer had a face. It had been ripped away and the neck had been gouged out. There were large wounds on the body as well. I tried to feel for a pulse, but when my fingers went straight into the muscles of the neck, I figured there was no pulse to feel. I wiped my fingers on the sleeping bag and pondered why this person was covered. I know the animal who did this didn't gently cover up the person with a sleeping bag when it was done. I found my answer laying above the head of the person. It was a note. I can't believe Terry's dead. I wish that I had never come on this trip. I wish that I had never let Devin bully us into turning down this trail. Where the heck is Devin anyway? When he stormed off on his little pity party, did he run across whatever creature had been stalking us? 
Is he sitting back in his tent now enjoying himself? I really don't know. We were enjoying not climbing up the face of the ravine, but we were very tired. I mentioned stopping and camping for a little bit to the ranger. He looked around and even sniffed the air. That seemed like a weird thing to do. But after that, he agreed to let us set up camp. He even told us to do it as quickly as we could. We gathered wood for a fire, but he told us not to bother because the rain was coming. I guess that explains the sniffing the air thing. Our tents had been on maybe 15 minutes when it had started raining. It quickly turned into a downpour. We all offered the ranger to sit in our tents with us, and he looked over us one by one. It was kind of creepy. Finally, he said that he would sit with Terry in his tent, and Dean and I looked at each other with a relieved expression. The ranger's helping us, but he isn't someone that I would like to ever see again. He acts too weird. At times, I wonder if he's really even helping us. I had just closed my eyes, listening to the rain on the tent and letting it carry me off to dreamland when the ranger had ripped over my tent. He said that we needed to pack up and leave right now, that something was hunting us. We dove out into the rain and miserably packed our tents. He reassured us that there was a nice cave nearby and that we could get shelter there. As I was packing up, I didn't see Terry so I went over to his tent and knocked. When there was no answer, I went in and found what was left of his body. Something had torn him to shreds. I covered my mouth to keep from vomiting and ran out to tell the others. Dean and the ranger looked in and saw that there was no helping him. The ranger said that he had left the tent to go to the bathroom, and when he came back, he saw a predator hanging around the tents. That's when he came to wake us up. I must have already gotten to Terry. I pulled his sleeping bag over his head and wished that we had time to give him a proper burial. But the ranger said the animal might be back for the rest of us. So we quickly packed and laughed. I barely had time to finish the note. Please help us. A cave? What kind of ranger is he? Doesn't he realize that would be the most likely place a large predator would call home? I thought for a moment what cave he could be talking about. I hadn't been on this trail for five years, ever since I found the kid here. And then it hit me. We were very close to the place where we had found him. Why would he take them there unless? I jumped up so quickly that I nearly fell on top of the body when I forgot, and to too much weight on my injured ankle. I hobbled out of the tent and went as quickly as I could toward the place that I swore I would never see again. I approached the cave and my heart sank. Two backpacks sat just inside the entrance. I pulled out my knife and flashlight, and then cautiously peeked inside. I felt a change in the breeze and turned to find the ranger staring at me. I looked him up and down. You, I said. The last time I saw you was when we found the boy. He said nothing. It was never a random animal attack, I said. It was you. He took a step toward me. Of course it was, he said. How wonderful was it to watch you years ago as you floundered around, looking for some predator that stood beside you. You. I pulled out my knife and held it ready. He paused and then smiled. Do you really think that knife can hurt me? I looked at it. I'm pretty sure, I said. It's made of iron. His smile vanished. 
So you do know what I am. I pulled out a bottle of brown water. I made sure to grab some runoff from the rainstorm, I said. It might not do as good as rust water, but let's find out. I opened the bottle and I threw some water at him. He dodged it as though it was acid. At the same time, I swung with the knife. He dodged with ease. Why don't you turn into what you truly are? I said, taunting him. Oh, because we both know when I transform, I'm vulnerable for a moment, he said. And I'm sure you would like to take advantage of that vulnerable moment. He swung and connected with my stomach, knocking the wind out of me. I recovered and swung the knife in a vicious downswing at him, which he easily dodged. I kept moving forward, stabbing and slashing at him, but I couldn't get close enough to connect. He was too fast. You can't defeat me, he said. Look at you, like an injured deer just waiting to be devoured. Be quiet, ye not Lucy, I yelled. At the mention of his name, he froze. I knew that I didn't have much time. I took advantage of the moment, lunging at him with my knife. If I had been uninjured, I would have closed the distance between us with two quick steps and buried the knife in his heart. But unfortunately, in the heat of the moment, I forgot about my injured ankle. I stepped forward on my good leg, and then faltered when I tried to put weight on the injured one. Instead of burying the knife in his heart, it went through his left thigh. He screamed in pain and ran out of the cave. I took out my flashlight and started toward the back of the cave. There I found a body next to a pile of bones. There was a note in her hand and I sat down took it and read. I can't believe how stupid I was not to see this sooner. All the time guiding us was just to play. He never wanted to help us. He never cared about any of us or our safety. I need to write this quickly before he comes back. The ranger led us here and told us to wait, that we would be safe in the cave. He left us alone. Dean pulled out his flashlight and explored deeper into the cave. He found a large pile of bones and off to the side of them was a pile of clothes. We ran toward the opening but the ranger had returned. So, you didn't listen, he said, leering at us. I told you to stay here and not explore my home. What are you? I said. He smiled for the first time since I had met him, but his smile wasn't comforting. It was terrifying. I watched in horror as he changed into a giant cat creature. It didn't look quite like a panther or a mountain lion, but he lunged at us with amazing speed. He grabbed my leg and tore a large gash in it. I fell to the floor, screaming. Dean tried to defend me, swinging his knife around and holding it at bay, but it stalked around him and cornered him. He only had one chance. He looked at me with sadness in his eyes and then ran past the creature and out of the cave. It looked at me and my leg and then sprinted out after Dean. I know why he did it. He was trying to give me time to escape, but with my leg there was no way that I could outrun that thing. What he actually did was give me time to say goodbye. So if you're reading this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I led you to your death. If you do somehow survive and make it out of here, please tell their families what really happened. Goodbye. I fought back tears as I read the final words of this brave girl. I limped to the front of the cave and looked out as the rain had stopped. It was like seeing a new world being born. I tried my radio and got an immediate answer. 
I gave them my GPS coordinates and told them to prepare for casualties. I'm still a park ranger even months later. I made sure that the trail was sealed off too. I carry an iron knife and rust water with me at all times. I carry the rust water and a squirt gun just in case. The bones were removed from the cave and subjected to DNA testing. Aside from this group of victims, including Devin, there were other people who had gone missing in the park over the years. The official version of the events was that a rogue animal had been hunting people. I was told that it would be best for my career if I didn't reveal the true nature of the predator. I still search for the creature and post signs everywhere to be on the lookout for an older ranger wearing a uniform with no patches on it. There's a number to call if anyone spots him. It's my personal cell number. From time to time, I hear reports of a large cat that's limping on its hind leg. I try to make my way to that spot as quickly as possible, but I have yet to catch him. I posted this story in memory of that brave girl, but also as a warning. Never go on an unposted trail, and beware of those you meet in the woods, even if they wear a uniform. Strange Times and Dark Visitors at the Ready Mart Written by Young Seti I had nearly missed the call over the blare of music in my headphones as I stocked the milk in the freezer section. My mind had been split between trying to stay warm under the artificial cold of the freezer and the song that I had blaring through my headphones when I heard it from the ear that I had left free. David and Matthew to the register. I need David and Matthew at the register. My co-worker's voice hissed over the ancient PA system as it blared through an ear-splitting electronic squeal into cloud of audio snow. I slid my phone out of my pocket, checking the time. 1.23 a.m. I had four more hours on shift. The store was usually empty by now. The busiest hours always came hours before or after I was on shift. Having little to no customers during most of the hours there, I occupied my time by stocking the things emptied over the day, which was why it struck me as odd that I was being called to the register. I could have never imagined what was really waiting for me up there. I doubted there was some overflow of waiting shoppers building up at Chelsea's register, and I had told her only minutes prior that I would be stocking the perishables. Usually, if someone needed me this late, they would just walk over and ask. I considered whether or not to finish the task at hand, unsure of whether or not it was best to leave the milk outside of the freezer for what was an undetermined amount of time. When I heard the click of approaching footsteps on the linoleum, Chelsea approached from down one of the aisles, moving at such a brisk pace I almost immediately knew that something was up. I nodded her way, opening my mouth to ask whether whatever she needed at the register could wait until the milk was away. Yet when I saw the look on her face, the words seemed to get stuck in my throat. She was oddly pale with a look as though she had just walked in on her own funeral, eyes wide and watery, 
and she was shaking like a leaf. With such force, I worried for her balance. She stared at me with a thousand mile stare, as if she had just seen a ghost. She moved so quickly and got so close to me that I nearly backed into the freezer in surprise when she brought her mouth to my ear and whispered, There's someone at the register. Her voice unsteady and strained with emotion. He won't leave, and there's something very wrong about him. When she pulled away, I could see the gleam of, I don't know, terror, I suppose, in her eyes. That resolve, wavering as a look that was a wide-eyed mix of unease and panic, passed across her face. My mind spun at the unusual state of her. Chelsea was as cool-headed as they come. Having moved to our small town from New York, Matt and I had always joked that she was built tougher than the rest of us, and whenever there was an unruly customer to deal with, a man or woman, she never failed to handle it. A foreboding chill rippled down my spine, not from the freezer for once. Sending a spasm through me as I considered the customer who could bring Chelsea to tears. Is he? Does he have a gun? She shook her head, wiping her eyes and sniffing. No, he just... He's just standing there looking at me. And he won't speak or leave and he keeps making this sound. Where's Matt? I asked. Matt was our co-worker and the third on the late shift with us. He and Chelsea had been dating for a few months and started working at the Ready Mart as a way to save up for an apartment. He was a funny, cool-headed sort who perpetually avoided conflict when it came, a perfect yin to her yang. He tended to bounce around the store like me, doing a bit of whatever needed doing, though he had a habit for extra-long smoke breaks multiple times a shift. He said that he was taking out the trash out back. You were the first person that I found. It was at that point that I caught something from the corner of my eye at the far end of the nearest aisle, close to the registers. From out of my periphery for a moment, I saw someone was leaning past the shelf in a way that hardly made sense balance-wise, concealing all but their upper half, watching us tactlessly. Naturally, my eyes followed, and as I turned my head a bit to peer past Chelsea down the aisle from which she had just arrived, I caught a glimpse of what appeared to be a man peering behind the farthest shelf. As soon as my eyes had turned to meet him, he disappeared with an almost cartoonish fervor, ducking out of sight with a jarring quickness. Pins and needles shot along my skin as I stared down at the empty hallway. Chelsea followed my gaze, eyes somehow widening further as she spun around to look where I was looking. I felt my heartbeat quicken. Everything about Chelsea's reaction and the odd, though brief glimpse of the man at the end of the aisle was making me feel like at the very least, we may be dealing with someone a little off. But still, I saw little other option than to try and see what he wanted or to ask him to leave. As distressed as Chelsea already was, I knew that I had to do something to avoid a scene, but didn't want to guarantee an escalation of things. I started down the aisle towards the register. I heard Chelsea gasp, 
and almost immediately her hand wrapped around my wrist, drawing me back. Don't. He's, he's not right. Her eyes watered, but she didn't waver. A look of panicked determination emblazoned on her features as she looked into my eyes. If he's being a weirdo, I'll ask him to leave. If he won't, I'll call the cops, I assured, carefully pulling my arm free. You can stay here or head to the back and get some space if you want. She stared at me for several moments, chewing her lip as she seemed to consider things, before wiping at her eyes with the backs of her hand. No, I'll go with you. If he gets weird again, I'll call the cops. I grimaced slightly despite myself. It wasn't that I didn't trust her to do what she said, but I had never seen her in such a state before, and I worried what might happen if she continued to be around whoever it was up front. Still, I didn't feel like we had the time for an argument, and the look in her eye told me that it would take one at the very least to dissuade her, so we made our way down the aisle. It's strange. I would walk that same aisle probably hundreds of times this month, never once feeling anything at all. But watching the palpable increase in Chelsea's tension as we neared the registers made my stomach sink lower with each step. Suddenly, the bright lights in the tan floors of the store began to feel like that of a hospital. An anxiety ebbed and surged through me, as though we were walking toward the doctor for bad news. As we reached the end of the aisle, I immediately noted the strange sound growing with our approach. It was a persistent clicking, reminiscent at first of the clank of a bicycle's gears when you take your feet off the pedals. Chelsea stopped, terror managing to surpass her defenses, as she froze just as we had approached the registers. She shook her head vigorously, pressing her hands to her ears half-heartedly. The look on my face was likely as quizzical as I felt, and she offered an explanation. I'm staying here. I don't like how he looks at me. I'll watch from right here. I was unnerved but felt no need to argue. Her discomfort, obvious. It was unlike her to say the least. Having worked with Chelsea and her boyfriend Matt over the past few months... I had come to develop a sort of casual friendship with the two, with them even being the only co-workers that I would actually hang out with outside of work on occasion. In that time, I had known Chelsea to be the type who reveled in the opportunity to put an out-of-line customer in their place, much to Matthew's constant chagrin. To see her like this was more than a little alarming. The odd click grew louder as I walked out of the aisle, as the line of registers came into view, so did he. In an instant, I was aware of two things. The first was that the clicking was coming from him, almost certainly the sound that Chelsea had spoken of. And the second was the smell. It was thick and sour, a stench that seemed to permeate the air as I approached, stirring an old memory. I lived down the road from a farm that has a couple of goats, notorious for escape. My brothers and I would always delight in finding one roaming our property and making a game of chasing it back home. One summer when I was a kid, our neighbors had told us that one of the goats, a three-year-old with a habit for late-night breakouts, 
hadn't been seen in an unusual amount of time. Around the same time, from the woods near our house, we began to smell an overwhelming stench carried by the breeze that plagued us for a couple of days. It got so bad that we wouldn't even play outside. A horrible smell like old meat left in the sun. My oldest brother found the animal's carcass not far past the tree line a few days later. Dad suspected a mountain lion had gotten a hold of it. Whatever the case, I never forgot that smell. The reek of decay now, for some reason, wafting through our convenience store. The chill I felt as I approached made me certain that someone somewhere was practically tap-dancing over my grave. The man at the register wore a tattered flannel and a pair of dirty jeans that looked to have been worn for months on end without a wash. He stood with his back to me, but I could see that he was swaying, his body rocking from side to side as though he were struggling to maintain his balance. Despite the black hood that he wore, I could see that his head was cocked at an odd angle to the right. How you doing, sir? I called, using my customer service voice as I crossed the gulf between the register and the aisle. Can I help you? I rounded the opposite end of the nearest shelf, offering cheap Easter-themed candies, keeping a distance between the man and myself as I approached. I felt that day's lunch churn about in my gut as the heavy odor of rotten mildew, damp and overpowering, began to grow unbearable on approach. It's source without question. The clicking sound. It came again. It reminded me vaguely of the strange chittery my cat had made the one time it escaped the house to chase a bird. Though his hoodie was up, obscuring his face, I was certain he had made the sound with his mouth, though how I wasn't so sure. It sent my gut twisting like a mound of worms, somehow even more disturbing up close. As I rounded the register, I got my first view of the man from the front. Jesus Christ. It was a testament to my self-control that I managed to limit the outburst to just a thought. He looked like walking death. His face was a sort of paper-thin and pale that I thought I'd reserved for the dead or dying. Yet it appeared almost plastic, shiny and hollow, in a way that made my skin crawl. It was a mask-like, and I couldn't peg why, but it just seemed as though his face didn't fit. Something dark red ran down his mouth and chin, and it didn't take much for me to guess what it was. The ragged condition of his lips telling me that he had chewed them near into oblivion, which only made those eyes all the more jarring. They were bloodshot, almost all of the white replaced by a pale red and his irises were two twin pools of obsidian, boring through my skull with a glassy yet sinister stare. I shuddered out of mutual disquiet and disgust. He glared at me with those scarlet eyes, as though he were trying to peer into my thoughts. For a moment, I found my words escaping me, a strange, primal sort of fear surging through me under that gaze that felt so entirely inhuman. My heart beat with a painful thrum, so loud that I could almost hear it, as my throat seemed to go dry, making me stumble over my words. Can, can I help you? My words seemed to hang in the air for several long, tense seconds that seemed to grow heavier with each passing moment. 
slowly his head cocked to the side in an almost reptilian gesture. His eyes had never once wavered from my own. God, that face. It made me want to scream or attack him or run out of the store and never look back. No amount of staring back at him made his horrific visage any more palatable. That sickly pale skin for two unnatural. The sound, it was coming from his mouth, yet his lips never once moved until the corners wavered, his smile stretching almost imperceptibly. It sounded like he was just making the K sound repeatedly, like a broken record. It wasn't like a shudder, more as if he were trying to figure out how his mouth worked, repeating the sound while staring back at me. The idea that this may be some sort of mental health or drug-related incident was beginning to seem like a sure bet. Sir, I... Can I help you? The cold shiver that sent down my spine and made my entire body twitch, and as the man finally spoke, I felt dread begin to seep through my consciousness. He sounded like me. I mean, I've heard impressions before, but heck, I've got a few of my own I've known to whip out at parties. This was not that. He literally spoke my own words back to me as if it were a recording. Until that moment, I was certain that, as odd as things had been, the man before me was just that. For the first time, it began to occur to me that that may not be the case. Can I help you? He repeated it, and again, it was as if it had a delayed echo. Welcome to Ready Mart, he chirped, now in Chelsea's voice. Make him stop, make him stop. Chelsea screamed from where she stood, clamping her hands over her ears, tears running down her face. I couldn't blame her for her reaction. At that moment, I had been struggling to come to grips with what was going on. Some small part of me was still praying that I had fallen asleep on shift again, and this was some horrifically vivid nightmare. The man thing, whatever it was, smiled at that. The first decipherable gesture he had made since entering. His head snapped around, almost a complete 180, turning to face Chelsea though his body never once wavered, still facing me. His jaw dropped so low and with such a suddenness. I was sure it must have ripped free from the bone. Stop. Stop looking at me like that. When he spoke next, a cold splash of realization hit me. And by the look on her face, Chelsea as well. Stop. Stop. Leave me the heck alone. Help. The uncanny recreation of Matthew's voice ended abruptly. Somehow that seemed worse than if it had continued. The look on Chelsea's face was unlike anything that I had ever seen outside of a movie. It was a strange blend of life-altering sadness, horror, and unmitigated fury all at once. It has Matthew's voice. Her voice shook as she spoke, every emotion on her face present in her words. How does it have Matthew's voice? So far, it had only been able to mimic us after hearing us, and now, it had just used Matthew's voice. The implication hung overhead like a guillotine. The fact that he still hadn't responded to the PA or come back from his garbage run only added a fuel to the fire. I did my level best to speak my next words as calmly as I could manage, which wasn't much given the state of things. Chelsea, my voice wavered as I spoke. Go find Matt 
and called the police. Chelsea nodded, but before she could even make a step to leave, the thing had made a sound. It was unlike anything that I had ever heard from a living thing before. The closest things that I can compare it to are the noise that a car brake makes before an accident, or the shriek of some winged dinosaur in a movie. It was long and piercing, the sort of noise that I could feel shaking my eardrums and bones alike, and utterly unlike anything produced by human vocal cords. Chelsea doubled over, clutching her ears. I did the same, but it was too late. The pain in my head worse than any migraine I had ever had. I felt a sharp pop in my left ear, followed by a tinnitus-like ringing and an odd wet trickle along that side of my jaw. The manner, whatever this thing was, extended an arm pointing one abnormally long finger in Chelsea's direction. Much to her utter horror, his mouth extended lower and lower, and lower until its lower jaw hung past its collarbone, as that god-awful screeching continued. The lights flickered once and then twice and then a final third time. His ungodly wail came to an end. For a moment, there was nothing but an awful silence, broken only by the continued ringing in my ear and the flicker of the lights. It was the sort of quiet that falls right before a tornado, when everything adopts an unnatural stillness and the air is charged with a foreboding energy. I made eye contact with Chelsea, and I could see that we were both feeling it too. She was gone in an instant, darting off down the aisle towards the back of the store. She must have gotten a few feet or so when that thing let out another of its horrid cries. The lights flickered off, and then on and then off. The darkness remained thick and suffocating. My heart beat painfully as I strained to hear through the ringing, my sight now all but gone. The first thing that I heard was Chelsea cry out in surprise. The next was a sudden clamor of footsteps moving forward. On, I could see again, and the first thing I noted was that the space before me was completely empty. He was gone. Run, I cried, knowing that it was neither necessary nor fruitful, but it seemed the only effort I could make knowing was what to come. I darted to the register, grabbing the miniature bat the mat had stashed under it in case of emergencies and I broke out into a sprint towards the aisle that Chelsea had gone down, knowing that was likely where it was too. Off. Darkness again. Whatever that thing had done to the power, it seemed it would be a recurring issue. My shoulder collided with one of the shelves of my blindness, wincing as the cold metal I managed to cut into my arm through the sleeve of my shirt. Sharp pain radiated through it, but I kept running. Somewhere in the darkness, a Chelsea's sudden scream rang out, immediately mixed with another strange cry from that thing. Odd. I could see again. My heart dropped. I was just in time to watch her face disappear as she was dragged out of the aisle and out of sight. For a brief second, we made eye contact. The unbridled terror in her face like nothing I had ever seen. I ran as fast as I could, unwilling to squander the brief moments of vision, managing to reach the end of the aisle before. Off. Ironically, it occurred to me like a light bulb going off in an instant, 
My phone. Between the nightmarish events and the adrenaline of the night, it had somehow escaped my mind completely. I fumbled through my pocket for the device, not even bothering to unlock it as I activated the flashlight. I quickly began to dial 911. The call sounded as though I were making it from a tunnel 600 feet under the ground. The dispatcher's voice faint and choppy. Yeah, I'm calling from the Ready Mart on North and Stony Creek. My coworker is being attacked. I think my other one may have been. I couldn't bring myself to say killed. Hurt. We need police immediately. Sir, for online. Though the service at the store was never the greatest, I had never experienced this level of disruption and knew immediately it was a result of that thing. I wasn't even fully sure that she had heard me. And while I knew protocol was to stay on the line, I couldn't afford to stay and talk while that creature had my friend. I ended the call and proceeded after the two. The back of the store was empty. The only thing visible near the other end of that was the rack of milk I had been stocking. A growing pool of water puddled beneath it. It occurred to me that I wasn't sure what this thing was capable of. I had already seen and heard it do the impossible and I would surely risk a physical confrontation pursuing it. But still, it wasn't like we ran a gun store. The selection of potential weapons was limited. An idea occurred suddenly. Tenuous at best, based on logic found in movies and YouTube videos. I moved carefully, heart pounding in my ear, pointing the light down each of the aisles as I passed, stopping in a few to gather what I needed. As I slid the can of cheap air spray into my pocket, already having what else I needed, a muffled cry echoed from somewhere in the store. Chelsea, Matt, I called, proceeding again down the back of the store. The sounds of a struggle from somewhere nearby made my ear perk up. Where are you? I tried my best to project confidence, sounding more angry and afraid than anything. From one of the aisles beside me, something shifted, and a low hiss carried through the dark. It sounded close. Chelsea, I called. I felt like a child walking from my room to the kitchen in the dark, the world around me suddenly full of unseen monsters. There were only a few aisles left. Chelsea and whatever it was that had her, they were bound to be in one of the next three. My stomach flipped at the realization, the suffocating feeling that I was slowly being closed in on beginning to take hold. Hey David. My heart lurched painfully and I nearly jumped out of my skin as I spun around. I only realized that it was Chelsea's voice after the initial shock had settled in replaced by an immediate relief to not be faced down by some horrid nightmare creature. Jesus Christ, you scared the crap out of me, I breathed. As I aimed the light at the end of the aisle, it caught on her face, pale and almost reflexive with what had to be sweat in the pitch black. She was peering from around the end of the shelf, only her head visible, hair twisted and matted as it curtained either side of her face. Are you a... The rest of my words caught in the sudden dryness of my throat. Her smile was wide, almost cartoonish and, almost as quickly as it came, the relief had faded, replaced by a cold, heavy knot of dread. Her smile, it, it wasn't right, neither the context or the appearance. 
It stretched just a bit too wide on her face, her eyes oddly bloodshot. She or it lurched forward in an instant, as if sensing that the charade was broken, giving off something like a mix between a woman's wail and a canine's howl utterly unnatural. I didn't have a moment to spare, as it crossed the aisle with blinding speed, hands outstretched ending in bestial claws. I raised the aerosol can, sliding my phone into my pocket and gripping the lighter that I always carried, flicking it as soon as it was out. For those seconds, I was plunged into darkness, only the sounds of the approaching nightmare to greet me. Dear God, let this work. I pressed down on the button as I could feel the cold tips of its claws grazing my skin. A burst of flame spat forth, the heat so intense that I nearly stopped. It didn't, however, as its furious cry shifted into a dry screech, and the thing reeled away, hands flying to its face. Its head was in a blaze, the sounds it made becoming more strange and airy as fire ate away at it internally. It shook its head like a wounded animal, with such ferocity it slammed into the shelves on either side. As it scratched and clawed away at its searing skin, I should have continued. Should have lit the thing from head to toe, but I was caught in a sickened awe at the gruesome sight. The smell, already that of dying things, grew sharp and warm, coating my nose and throat. As the blade sputtered to a singular flame and then a faint hiss, a strained silence fell over everything. On. The lights clicked back on with a pop, making me jump with its return. The thing glared at me, one of its eyes a ruined mess in its drooping socket, as its face began to melt and peel, like a dolly representation of a human, the other glistening with pain and hate. The face, its melting mockery of Chelsea's face, drooped with a surreal, pain-like effect. I struggle still to describe what lie beneath. It was like a hyper-realistic depiction of a child drawing of a human face. A nose that was merely a pair of small holes. Its eyes, two pinpoints and a swollen, rigid skull reminiscent of a pumpkin. Even still, a smile stretched across its charred features, half with its own small mouth, the other with what remained of its mirage. Go, I sputtered, spraying another burst of flame in its direction. It hissed but didn't step forward. I heard a groan from the aisle beside us. Its singular eye darted to the side, and it cocked its head to the right, listening for something that I couldn't hear. It shuddered, chattering angrily, before speaking what I thought were its final words to me. Need David. Go find you, David. It struggled to put the words together, but made sure its point was clear. And with that, it scurried off, disappearing down the aisles and towards the exit leaving me frozen in horror and disbelief. The sound of things falling to the ground in the aisle beside me made my heart lurch, and it reminded me of Chelsea. I hurried over, still clutching my impromptu flamethrower as I rounded the shelf. She lay in a heap on the ground, curled up in a half-fetal position. Recognition bloomed through the initial fear in her eyes as she saw me, and she hurried to her feet, brushing forward. Claw marks gouged her face and she shook wildly, but appeared otherwise okay. Matt, I have to go find Matt. She hurried past me towards the back door into the dumpsters. 
I followed and we hurried through the small stock room and out the back of the store. I didn't see anything at first, but Chelsea cried out and rushed out or towards the dumpster where I saw a pair of legs stretched out from behind it. Matt, Matt, get up, Matt. My heart dropped as I saw him. The panic in her voice and his utter stillness as well as the look of him making me think the worst. His face was scarred. Deep gashes digging through half of it as though he had been mauled. Strange scars patterned his visible skin. My heart dropped. In the distance, an approaching siren blared. Matthew coughed. Holy crap, I breathed. He's alive. Chelsea did her best and not to let panic override her, still practically hyperventilating as Matt's eyes slowly began to flutter open. Dark blood spurted from his mouth as he slurred his words. His eyes seemed to lock on me. The sirens grew nearer. You're okay, you're okay. Wait for the ambulance. He coughed again. There's a man. You have to. It's fine. We're fine. He's gone. I could hear a faint conversation from within the store. The sirens come into a halt at the front. The glow of emergency lights lighting up the night. The rest of the night went by in a relative blur. We all spoke to the police, giving our accounts of the night's events, leaving nothing out despite the insanity of it all and the looks that it garnered. The security footage was abuzzed, the cameras and corresponding computers all fried somehow when the power went out. A random power surge, they say, but I know better. Matthew denied emergency medical, citing a lack of insurance, and Chelsea followed his lead so after a few hours of questioning, the police and EMTs had all left the lot. The store was closed for the rest of the night, but given that little was broken after a meager phone call with the manager, apologizing for our trauma and offering a temporary increase to our employee benefits, the matter was considered resolved. Let the other two know when you see them. I'm not getting an answer. He told me and I agreed to, tired to do otherwise. Despite it all, I returned to work the next day. After all, trauma and sob stories, no matter how reasonable, don't pay the rent. Neither would employee discounts. I was content to try and erase the night's events from my mind, acting as if none of it had ever occurred. But recent events have deemed that impossible. You see, I thought nothing of Matthew and Chelsea's absence the rest of that week. Sure, I found it odd how none of my calls to either of them were answered, but we all cope with trauma differently. However, last night, almost a week after the ordeal, I received a call that has made it so I can't feel safe returning to work. I don't feel safe at all. My manager called me before my latest shaft, the tone in his voice immediately making my stomach bubbling with an odd sort of anxiety. The cops are looking to speak to Chelsea if you've heard from her. He had begun. Someone found a body in the bog near the store. I'm sorry, I know you guys were close, but it was Matt's. I felt cold and hollow, as though every ounce of blood had evaporated into an icy mist in my veins. They say that he's been there for about a week. I think they suspect maybe she had something to do with it. Brought him back here that night, I don't know. Anyways, you can uh, take some time off. When the call ended, I sat frozen with the phone to my ear, letting the dial tone blare as my mind raised, his words echoing in my mind with cavernous effect. He's been there for about a week. I had seen Matt that night, we both had. I watched him and Chelsea drive off that night, I'd. 
Like a flashback, my mind replayed the image of that thing and the appearance of Chelsea peering at me. I had seen something that looked like Matt. A quiet, mangled version of him at that. My heart pumped panic through me as awful connections began to form. Suddenly, Chelsea and Matthew's complete radio silence made awful sense. And that thing's a threat bears new weight. I believe Chelsea's dead by now, unfortunately. Matthew, too. I don't think I'll be returning to work for a while, if ever. The paranoia has gotten overwhelming. I see monsters in every shadow. Hear approaching death in the creak of every floorboard. Heck, even as I write this in my room, beside the window carrying in the late night breeze, I cannot but feel that I can smell the faint but growing scent of rot in the air. God help me. I hope that you enjoyed this week's collection of stories. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.